This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from allcomic.com, episode 160. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lone Romeyasha, and set your heart ablaze, and don't hold your breath, because it is finally time for us to cover one of the biggest manga phenomenons of all time, and a defining manga of our generation, Demon Slayer Kometsu no Yaiba. At long last, we are finally covering in full the entirety of the hit series, the series that is a social phenomenon in Japan and abroad, breaking all sorts of records in terms of not just manga sales, but in anime and film history. It is such an incredible series in terms of the impact it has in just a little bit over five years. It's such a young franchise, but it already it is a phenomenon worldwide and one of the top ten highest selling manga of all time already. It's just such a incredibly successful series, it's such an incredibly interesting series. And of course, we've got some of the most passionate fans and experts we know to talk about it. Of course, the hosts of the Demon Slayer podcast, V Lord, Sakaki, Marion, all of which come onto the show and give their re- really great insights on why they think the series hits as hard as it does, what makes it so special and interesting in terms of its storytelling, in terms of the themes it explores. Why is it so resonant? We cover all of that, everything we really enjoyed and appreciated about the series, as well as some of our smaller quibbles about how the story panel, but also how that stimulates kind of like our magic off. How could things be? Like, where is the potential in the world to explore further? Which maybe the franchise will go deeper into in the years to come. So, I am so excited for you to listen to our retrospective of Demon Slayer. It is going to be a really, really great discussion. And I think a wordy one to commemorate a little over a year now, the series' conclusion as a manga, but... It seems like the franchise has quite a lot of steam left into it. The train has only just left the station. No, yeah, I'm sure the franchise is going to be around for a while longer yet. I'm I'm sure they're probably going to, like, animate the rest of it some way, somehow. Um, there's still a lot of money to be made off of Demon Slayer alone, so. That's a guarantee. But, yeah, I mean, I, I had a lot of fun with this discussion, too. I'm glad that I finally got around to reading Demon Slayer. Uh, especially since, like, you know, I, I, I talk about it in the, in the discussion, but like, you know, it, it was, it was something that, like, I just kind of, I was just, like, okay with. I just kind of liked it, but I really, really loved it by the time I finished it. And, uh, you know, this is one of those things where, like, we could have said so much more about, you know, the series, but I think we ended up covering at least all of our main bullet points. But yeah, there's, we, we probably could have talked at least for another hour or two about Demon Slayer. It was that good. Indeed. And yes, I do think we very concisely pinpointed like the core thematic ideas that we wanted to discuss and also the core points about the series we wanted to discuss. So I thought it was a very focused discussion in that regard. And like we very officially covered all the grounds of like 
what makes Demon Slayer, in broad strokes, like, very special. But indeed, if you do want even more extended Demon Slayer coverage, again, listen to the Demon Slayer podcast, where you will get exactly that. Lots of great Demon Slayer talk and analysis in their archive episodes on both the manga and anime. Definitely check them out. Obviously, we recommend them before. They're friends of the show. You've heard them on our show so many times before. But yeah, obviously, go check that out for continuing great Demon Slayer chatter. I'm sure that the Mugen Train discussions, because we Lord recorded two of those, both of those will be coming out in relatively short order. So look forward to those discussions. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe hopefully one day I can finally be on the Demon Slayer podcast now that I've actually seen all of it. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. I, I think I said it in the discussion as well, but I, I would I would love to be on during when uh, season two finally starts airing later in the year. And I'm looking forward to the Entertainment District arc. That's a really good arc. Absolutely. Uh, but before we even move on to our discussion, we actually have a lot of Demon Slayer news that uh, has kind of accumulated since our last news episode that we kind of thought, hey, we might as well just cover it on this episode because there's a lot to talk about with Demon Slayer just alone. And I think we're going to start off with our usual list news because there's there's a lot of Demon Slayer to talk about with these uh, past New York Times and book scan lists in particular. So I think we're just going to start off with the New York Times best-selling graphic books and manga list for May 2021. And um, just counting on the list here ahead of time, the New York Times list is almost half manga, which is, I think, the first time this has happened since this new incarnation of the list started, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. A A running trend with both these lists is that manga is doing better than I think it ever has before. Indeed. At the very least since probably like the early 2000s, I would say. He's been seeing this trend for the past few years of manga's nomination in the graphic uh, novel marketplace. But more than ever, since last year, we have just seen utter domination in terms of the charts. So, yeah, this is, you know, an incredibly good time to be a manga fan. And it's an incredibly good time for the manga industry in North America. There have been so many pieces that have come out recently exploring that in great detail about how manga has extremely taken off. It's definitely a renaissance. All right, but uh, just starting from the bottom here, at number 15, we have Volume 1 of Spy Family, which I believe is the first time Spy Family has placed on this list, which is pretty cool. Has it? I feel like we've seen it before. Maybe not. I don't remember. It's been a long time. Maybe. I am i don't remember myself. I feel like this is the first time it's been on the list, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm not entirely sure. Um, something I know has been on the list before is uh, Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba Volume 2 at number 14, along with Volume 1 ranking at number 6, uh, which, you know, again, Demon Slayer is, I think, uh, probably one of the best performing franchises over here in North America, along with stuff like My Hero Academia and slowly rising, I guess, just to move on to the next thing on the list, with Jujutsu Kaisen Volume 9 at number 12, which... I'm pretty sure this is the newest volume of Jujutsu Kaisen. Yes. Which uh, I think number 12 on the list is a is a pretty good showing. And then I know this isn't the first time for this series on the list because we have, uh, we have Chainsaw Man Volume 2 ranking at number 9 along with Volume 4 ranking at number 8. Uh, Chainsaw Man in particular doing super well, again, for something that doesn't have an anime, 
that is getting an anime soon, but it's just, it's, it's doing so much better than honestly I thought it would. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, Chainsaw Man really has hit it big and is selling extremely well for a series without anime. And it's going to be interesting to see if that only explodes when the anime does come out. Like, if it's doing so well, if it already has so much notoriety and interest already without anime, like, just imagine what an anime could do for it in terms of exposure. The same is true for Spy Family, too. No, yeah, for sure. Um, Chainsaw Man, I think, is definitely going to be one of those things where, like, when the anime does hit, and if it's popular enough, which I think it will be, um, we, we will probably see at least one book scan list in particular where it's probably going to be, like, half Chainsaw Man. I can see that happening at least once. I wouldn't doubt it. And then the last thing on the New York Times list in particular is uh, volume 27 of My Hero Academia, the newest volume of My Hero Academia, at number five on the list. Uh, once again, a pretty good showing for My Hero Academia. It's kind of as to be expected. Um, my only thing is, I can't believe there isn't two volumes of My Hero Academia on this list. And uh, that's a thing that kind of carries over into the next list. But um, once again, I think this is probably the best showing for manga on this new version of the New York Times list since it uh, started back up. There was a month, a few months ago, which also had a lot of good uh, population of manga on there, but I think this is indeed the most volumes represented. So this is definitely a really good showing. Looking through the archives, I believe this is the first time Spy Family showed up, but it isn't the first time Jujutsu showed up. Jujutsu uh, showed up a few months back as well. But regardless, I mean, it is very good to see that these are pretty much five of the biggest manga right now. Demon Slayer, Jujutsu Kaisen, Spy Family... Chainsaw Man, My Hero. So those are like the five big franchises to really watch out for because they seem to be doing very, very well. Like consistently across what lists we use to gauge these metrics, the NYT list and Bookscan. But Bookscan in particular, we are seeing definitely like a big swing in terms of like who is in the lead in the market share right now in terms of sales. Because for so long, it has been My Hero dominating the charts as like the top selling manga title. And that's no longer the case as of the April list because Demon Slayer has taken that crown away from it in the wake of, I don't think it's a coincidence, Mugen Train opening in theaters. And it's quite a sight to see. Demon Slayer is nearly half of this top 20, with a representation of nine volumes on here. Yeah, that's really crazy. Uh, but before we get onto that real quick, uh, I do want to start at the top of the list with My Hero Academia, volume 27, ranking at number one. No surprise that My Hero Academia would, would be the number one rank on this list. Um, but what is surprising as we uh, kind of move further down on the list, uh, along with volumes two at number nine and volume 26 at number 18, uh, what is surprising about this list, as you mentioned, Demon Slayer pretty much conquers this list as far as like uh, the series with the most single volumes on this list, because My Hero Academia only has three volumes on this list, which yeah. hasn't happened in quite a while. Yeah, Demon Slayer has tripled the representation. Yeah, it, again, this is a huge shift in terms of what series is the most hot property right now. And it's super interesting to see that happen. I wonder if it's going to continue this momentum. I think that May's list, I think, we'll definitely see. But uh, I'm, I'm curious to see the long-term trend of this. 
Yeah, yeah. One thing that uh, ICV2 does point out is that I think this is the first time in a while where Volume 1 of My Hero Academia has not ranked on this list. Yeah, I mean, that just goes to show how well these other volumes must be selling to beat out a perennial bestseller like the first volume of MHA. Maybe everyone in North America has finally gotten the first volume of My Hero Academia. Well, it seems like they're still catching up on the second. And there always seems to be a market for first volumes, considering, you know, we still see a lot of first volumes represented on this list of a lot of big series, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would love to see, like, print numbers for the uh, North American release of the first volume of My Hero Academia alone, because, like, I have to imagine that first volume alone is moving a lot of numbers. Yeah, I think when we covered, I forget what list it was, but last year we did cover a list that broke down like how many copies a volume of My Hero Academia did sell, or maybe not a singular volume, but I think maybe the series as a whole sold in the year last year. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if we had like ICV2 professional account, we'd get like the actual numbers of how many copies were sold. But uh, we're we're going off the free version, which just has the rankings. So, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean, we've been talking about Demon Slayer, and I guess we might as well just talk about that real quick, as far as like what volumes ranked on this list, because uh, Volume One ranked at number four, with Volume Two ranking at number five, Volume Twenty One ranking at number seven, with Volume Three ranking at number twelve, Volume Eight ranking at number thirteen, with Volume Four ranking at number fifteen. Volume 9 ranking at number 17, and Volume 7 ranking at number 19, and Volume 10 ranking at number 20. So yeah, nine volumes of Demon Slayer. That's that's crazy. It is so interesting that all the first 10 volumes, with the exception of Volumes 5 and 6, rank here in this top 20. It's just interesting that 5 and 6 just barely missed a cut, but it is no surprise to see, like, 8 in particular is a very high-selling volume. Because, of course, that is, like, the conclusion of Mugen Train in the manga. And that has Rengoku on the cover. So I'm sure a lot of people seeing the buzz about the movie, like, also in the bookstores see that volume and go, Hey, I know this. Like, I know this character. Or I want to read this part of the story. I want to revisit Mugen Train in the manga. So they take that volume. And, of course... Top three volumes, people getting into the beginning of the series, trying it out, starting it out. And of course, volume 21 being the latest volume. And then, yeah, like 9 and 10 being the start of the entertainment district. The stuff after the movie that people will want to check out after seeing the movie and be like, I want to know what happens next so badly. So, yeah, very, very cool to see like some Demon Slayer domination here on the charts. And yeah, I am so curious to see like how this is going to continue going forward. Like the movie definitely seems to have made an impact on the manga sales over here. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, and like you said, I'm very interested in this is how like long term this may be, uh, if at all. But yeah, just to kind of move on to everything else on the list, you know, we have Chainsaw Man Volume Four ranking at number two on the list, with Volume Two ranking at number six, and I believe that's all of Chainsaw Man on this list, but I mean, again, uh, Chainsaw Man, while it only has two volumes on this list in particular, like, it still ranks very high. Yeah, they're both in the top ten. So, I mean, once again, like, I'm just I'm just so surprised at Chainsaw Man's uh, popularity and, uh, and success. Like, people are really eating it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, we have Jujutsu Kaisen Volume 9, 
ranking at number three, uh, with volume one ranking at number 11, and volume seven ranking at number 14, and that's about three volumes of Jujutsu Kaisen on this list. Again, JJK, another steadily growing popular series that I'm sure isn't going to stop anytime soon. I'm really interested in how well this series is going to do when uh, the movie version of Volume Zero comes out. I'm sure Volume Zero in particular, when that movie comes out, is probably going to rank really highly on this list. I wouldn't, I would be surprised if it wasn't in the top five. Absolutely. I mean, we've already seen uh, Volume Zero pop up on the charts when it was first new, but indeed, I think the movie is going to lead to a boost in sales of that one in particular. And yeah, I mean, I am so curious, especially seeing how the movie has affected uh, Demon Slayer's sales this month. Like, what a Jujutsu film, particularly if it did actually get a wide release here uh, in North America, like what that could do for JJK. But yeah, like, it's also interesting that obviously Volume 1, beginning of the series, people are still checking it out. But 7 and 9 is interesting. Eight's not in there. But like I guess 7 is the one directly continuing off after it in an anime. And the 9 is like the newest volume. So that would explain that. But yeah, good to see some really good rep for JJK. I mean, about as many volumes as MHA on this list. So, you know, that kind of is a good gauge of like, hey, this is a hot property on par right now. No, yeah, for sure. But uh, last but not least, uh, we're just going to round out this list uh, with the few Volume 1s that have ranked on this list, starting with Attack on Titan Volume 1, ranking at number 8. Uh, Attack on Titan Volume 1, what, what, what can you say about it at this point? Like, uh, you know, we were talking about My Hero Academia Volume 1 earlier, but I mean, Attack on Titan Volume 1, you know, like, when it comes to Volume 1s for, like, manga in particular, like, Attack on Titan is just it's just a constant thing on, like, the New York Times and this list in particular. I mean, you know, it, it didn't rank on the original New York Times list for 80 weeks running, you know, for nothing, you know? Yeah. That's, uh, that's really amazing to me. I mean, My Hero Academia Volume 1 is probably the only Volume 1 that could, like, really compete with that, potentially. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Attack on Titan, everybody everybody likes it. Or at least most people do. Uh, and then we have Spy Family Volume 1, ranking at number 10. Pretty good placement for Spy Family. I don't know if it's, like, the highest it's ranked on this list. I don't feel like it's in the top 10 very often. Not that I can remember anyway. I think it has had some volumes when it, they come out new that can rank high, from my recollection. I, I want to say it's usually around, like, the midway point of the list. I, I feel like that's been pretty consistent. Mm, yeah. And I guess last but not least, we have Tokyo Ghoul Volume 1, ranking at number 16. Tokyo Ghoul, one of those things that, like... It's interesting that, like, I, I feel like because we see Volume 1 rank on this list so often that, like, it feels like a lot of people get into Tokyo Ghoul, but it's it's just kind of interesting to me that we don't normally see, like, a lot of the... Like, the rest of the backlog rank on this list. That's just interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, Tokyo Ghoul... Yeah, series is over, so, you know, I guess, like, other volumes, they don't, like, uh, pop in as much, but, like, people are still always checking it out, that first volume, and the series in general, so I can see why that is one of those perennial sellers that you'll see pop up, but not other volumes of Tokyo Ghoul, necessarily, I mean, the same is, I think, gonna hold true from Attack on Titan going forward. I mean, Attack on Titan, I mean, with next season of the anime next year, I'm sure we could probably see other volumes maybe pop in again. But 
Yeah, it always seems like Volume 1s, of course, do very well because people, like, are trying out a series or they want to get into a series. So those will always be weighted as, like, the most highest-selling books in a series. Yeah, um, kind of a small tangent, but, uh, and we'll obviously talk about this on a later episode of the podcast more in depth, but, uh, I'm really interested in how his new series, uh, Sweet Ishida's new series, Chojin X, will do when it eventually probably, you know, gets, like, a print release over here, because I, I feel like it probably will at some point. Yeah, I, Tokyo Ghoul is a very popular series, and there was a lot of anticipation for Chojin X as Ishida's new work. So I think it'll do pretty well. I I, though I feel like I have seen mixed reactions from, in general, folks. But, like, people who like Tokyo Ghoul a lot seem to really dig uh, Tojin X. So, yeah, I, I wonder if it'll have the same wide appeal Tokyo Ghoul has. But, I, you know, I could see it being popular. Like, it's just one chapter in, and so it's going to be hard to gauge necessarily. But, uh, yeah, I'll be curious. I'll be curious to see how that pans out, especially because it's going to be published at Ishida's own pace. It says a very interesting publication schedule that's just really up to Ishida to, you know, just draw as he likes. So I'm going to be very curious to, to see how that affects kind of the buzz around the series as well, like in terms of anticipation for new chapters and the storytelling. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a very curious thing. We'll definitely talk about that in a future episode, uh, our thoughts on the series and, you know, the potential it might have. Like, it, it's an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it yet just because I'm I'm just kind of saving it for when we finally cover it on the show. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in seeing what it's like. I, I haven't even, like, flipped through it yet, so I don't I don't know anything about it going in. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting discussion. It's an interesting start, I will say. Mm-hmm. It's good to hear. Um, but yeah, that's really about it for the book scan list in particular. I mean, once again, it's it's really cool to see how well manga's doing. Like, it's, you know, you kind of mentioned some, uh, some of the, uh, I guess, articles that have come out kind of really talking about, like, you know, uh, manga and how well it's been doing and... Um, I forget which publication it was, but but I know I like retweeted a an article. Polygon. Yeah, Polygon. Thank you. Uh, you know, really talking about how manga is kind of a part of the mainstream pop culture in, at the moment, and it's kind it's it's a weird feeling, but it's it, it is really cool to see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's undeniable. Like, I feel like Mugen. I mean, we'll talk about it. Well, me talking about it, Mugen Train success here, but. That is a mainstream uh, box office performance. That is indicating, okay, this is a series in the mainstream, and if Demon Slayer is a mainstream, then like all these other titles that like are at the top of these graphic novel charts, you can better believe that these are mainstream franchises and titles. And yeah, like manga is mainstream. Like people are very reticent to buy and read manga now, and a lot of the big franchises are just big franchises in general not just for manga just like across all different media types like their big series that people have an awareness of and are fans of and are interested in competitively like uh, i mean if you even compare to like the sidebar of like icv2's website and look at like their list of like hottest properties or like what i guess people are searching for in terms of like big 
franchises on their site, I think. It's just like, Demon Slayer's number two after Pokemon. It's just, you know, uh, they're big stuff. They're big. Like, My Hero Academia, more hot than Falcon the Winter Soldier, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's big stuff. Oh, yeah, it's really cool to see. But uh, speaking of uh, Mugen Train success, Lum, I think we can just go on to that if you want to cover some of that. Yeah, I think we covered some box office news for Demon Slayer when the movie had just come out. But to follow up on that, it has indeed earned even more accolades. The opening weekend is now reported as the highest opening weekend ever for a foreign language film. Obviously, Mugen Train also so does, but because it showed sub, that makes it count. And obviously, Broly doesn't count because that only got showed dub. So and the Pokemon films also don't count because they really showed dub. Like, this is the highest, like, Japanese anime film that was shown in Japanese with English subs in terms of box office revenue. So, yeah, like, with its opening weekend gross, it earned that accolade, beating out the previous uh, foreign language opener, Hero, from 2004, which had a 17.8 mil. Adjusting for inflation, I suppose that uh, that might still technically take it. But, like, you know, in terms of pure actual numbers, like, Demon Slayer takes it, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. Like, that got a lot of buzz. Like, whoa, this is the biggest opening ever for a film that's playing in another language. Like, that's, uh, I mean, yeah, (laughs) that's pretty big. And for anime film, like, that's extremely big. Because, like, that's... Definitely a mile away from other openings that were for anime films that were shown with dual language options of Japanese subtitles and English subs because the rest of the movies, anime movies in the top five highest grossing anime movies are like old movies that were just shown English dub. So it's pretty, pretty big deal. Anecdotally, I think that shows that like people, anime fans are days and just general people who can watch anime, they are pretty reticent and receptive to just watching a series in Japanese with English subs. Like, when I have seen, like, uh, people, or when I have seen, like, how the theaters fill up, the auditoriums fill up for screenings of the movie, like, the Japanese uh, screenings, the screenings in J- Japanese, like, they're doing very well, like, oftentimes better than the dub screenings. So, mm, wow, it's very interesting to me. But... Yeah, I mean, Demon Slayer was not just a one-hit weekend wonder like a lot of anime films often are. Like, we talked about Broly did well its first weekend at the box office. Um, MHA, Heroes Rising did well first weekend in the box office. But then they dropped off, like, immediately the next weekend. They didn't stick around. Demon Slayer, in contrast, did an amazing thing in that it ranked number two on its opening weekend because it opened the same weekend as Mortal Kombat. And Mortal Kombat just barely edged it out on that opening weekend. However, Demon Slayer got its revenge on the second weekend of the release because Demon Slayer came out as number one at the box office in its second weekend, beating out Mortal Kombat. Wow. And that is incredible. Again, because Demon Slayer is in like two-thirds as as many theaters. It's in like a thousand less theaters than Mortal Kombat. And you'd think that Mortal Kombat being like a big, wide studio release film that was contain the momentum, but no, Demon Slayer edges out. I think Demon Slayer, in terms of overall revenue, has earned more than Mortal Kombat at this point too. 
and they came out same weekend and Mortal Kombat had that head start. So that's pretty crazy. But it's also pretty amazing because Demon Slayer ranking number one at the box office, like that is only the second Japanese film and anime film ever to have ever done that. Obviously, the first Japanese anime film to have done that was Pokemon the first movie over 21 years ago. And now 21 years later, we have Demon Slayer accomplishing that same feat in its second weekend. It's just incredible. That far, far it surpasses any expectation. Like any, like that just is blowing away what Broly, <laughs> the feats that accomplished. Especially since, yeah, in terms of overall box office revenue, like Demon Slayer edged out Broly by the end of its second weekend, and it's far eclipsed at this point because Demon Slayer movie trade at this point has earned over forty million dollars and is just climbing and. Honestly, by the time that you're listening to this, I would not be surprised if it's earned the spot of the number two highest grossing anime film of all time in the U.S., uh, beating out Pokemon the Movie 2000, which had a overall gross of 43700000 I think Demon Slayer is going to eclipse it. It really depends on the continuing performance of it, but Mugen Train has legs. It has the most legs of any anime film being shown theatrically that we've seen in a long, long time. Like, it's outpacing Broly, and considering the conditions of the release that it, you know, selling kind of like a... I mean, it's it was a good time that, you know, people had gotten vaccinated, and like, more people are feeling comfortable going to theaters, and of course, there's so much anticipation for this movie, but it's still crazy. Like, still, in the midst of the pandemic, Demon Slayer performs this well uh, uh, over like a film that you think has a longer history has a longer base a wider base in North America like it's just crazy to see that Mugen Train is just this big a film it just has get garnered this much like interest and demand and it's continuing to sustain that demand over multiple weekends which is something like Broly and Heroes Rising were really able to do. It was just so crazy. And obviously, thanks to the North American grosses, it finally has earned the spot as the number one highest grossing film of 2020. The number one highest grossing film worldwide. It's basically now taking the crown of, like, the, yeah, one of the highest grossing films of a year, which is, it's the first, like, highest grossing film of a year that is not a Hollywood film since the history of cinema. It took that spot from the number two, the now number two, the 800. But yeah, like Demon Slayer, an anime film, you can now say is one of the highest grossing films of the year it came out in, which is crazy. It's 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 same moment for anime that you can say like an anime film is one of the biggest films of the year at a, a point of time in history. It's just incredible. It's like, yeah, obviously the first anime film to have done this, the first Japanese film to have done this, the first non-US film to have done this. It's just, it's so, so insane to see how successful this movie has been. And, you know, I have to wonder, like, if they do continue to make films, like, could we see a repeat of this? I mean, I don't know, but it seems maybe it's a lightning ball kind of situation. However, you know, if you've ever wanted a gauge of like, hey, anime is a globally mainstream phenomenon now, and or at least Demon Slayer as a franchise is this globally mainstream phenomenon, then 
I mean, this is as good as proof as any. Like, this is a big, big series, a big, big film, a big, big deal. And that's why we really wanted to finally get around to talking about it. Because it's so special and interesting that the series that is just so relatively young has captured the imagination and interest and enthusiasm of people across the globe as gripped it as strongly as it has. It's just... Really, really fascinating. Definitely worthy of exploration. And I think we really should get into that discussion because there's just so much to say about Demon Slayer as a series and what makes it so resonant to such a broad audience of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I really couldn't have said it better myself. Um, I, I think I think we should just get right into our discussion. Yep, let's put an end to this intro with our blade. Cut our necks to escape the nightmare of the intro to get into the reality and engage in our discussion. I see it. The opening thread. Podcast breathing. Reverbing echo. Keep your heart burning and your breathing steady and don't let your blood boil over with excitement because it's time for a long-awaited retrospective on one of the biggest manga of not just this past decade, not just of this century, but perhaps of all time, Demon Slayer, Kometsu no Yai, but that's right, we are finally discussing the record-breaking, record-shattering, phenomenon hit series by Koyoharu Gotoge, and who else would we get on to discuss the series with us but the hosts of the breakout popular Demon Slayer podcast, Velor GTZ, Sakaki, and Marion! Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> I don't know what this Demon Slayer podcast is, but it kind of sucks, I think. <laughs> really? One of the top 20 podcasts in animation and manga consistently isn't good? You are a liar, sir. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Banana. We're pretty dope. Yeah, we're almost at 5K. Yeah, I know. Like, I think you'll reach it there now that that movie's coming out. A lot of people continue to be excited for Demon Slayer and want to hear Demon Slayer perspectives. Yeah, I guess people just like Demon Slayer for some reason. I wonder why. Damn, it's almost like it's good. (laughs) Right? Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the extent of its popularity is definitely really one of a kind. Because, yeah, I mean, in Japan, we've talked on this show so much about how big a phenomenon it is. 
being the highest grossing manga of last year by a magnitude is 3.5 times whatever the second place grossed and even being more than double whatever One Piece was able to sell in a year at its peak. So Demon Slayer is just a huge hit, a huge phenomenon. And of course, we talk about the record-shattering, record-breaking movie, highest grossing Film in Japan of all time, highest grossing animated film of last year, and one of the highest grossing films of last year, highest grossing R animated film now technically as well. I mean, that Demon Slayer movie is just so successful that I'm curious to see how it's going to do in the States because I've been checking some pre-sale ticket numbers, uh, reservations in just our local area, and it seems like, based on those, it's going to do pretty well here, too. Yeah, it looks to be like case all across the board worldwide, or not worldwide, I guess nationwide in this case. Mm. But yeah, so it's a good sign that uh, people are going to be flocking to those theaters. Right, and now we're here today to discuss what makes Demon Slayer as a series so special. Why has it caught... The hearts, the imagination, the love of so many people worldwide. What is making this such a -a one-of-a-kind, once-in-a-lifetime, mega-hit phenomenon? And I think it's going to be well worth doing because Demon Slayer is definitely a series deeply tied with our podcast because this was the very first new Shonen Jump series we covered like at the very beginning of the show. Go back to... Episodes three, I believe, we covered the very first chapters of Demon Slayer, and we didn't have any expectation or any consideration that this series could be end up becoming as big as it did. Like, I remember I really loved those first chapters. I believed in it, that it could be a great series. It had all the makings of it, but never thought it could be like this huge oh no yeah um i mean i i guess as for me like that discussion i tried to listen back to it and like when i listened back to it and i don't know maybe i'm just being too hard on myself but like usually when when i like re-listen to old episodes of our show or whatever you know and i listen to myself talk and i listen to myself make a point and sometimes i take too long to get to the point like i am now sometimes i'll be like huh okay i i can understand like what i'm trying to say even if i don't word things like the like the way I want to but but with our with our old demon slayer discussion like when when that first chapter first popped I listened to our discussion and I'm like I don't know what the fuck I'm trying to say um I think that discussion in particular is a good like it's a time capsule for sure like obviously we had just started the show and we were kind of trying to figure out our format and everything and like you know I I I like to think since then I've gotten a lot better at like expressing my like critiques and thoughts on a thing and that is to say you know if you do go back to listen to that old discussion and you're like what the fuck is this dude talking about um i guess just to kind of talk about my just just to kind of reiterate my first impressions from way back when i definitely remember i think i was kind of interested in it but i i do remember kind of reading the first chapter and being like i i don't think it really hooked me right away but I, I did at least think like, okay, this is kind of interesting. I feel like Demon Slayer was one of those things that premiered Jump that that I felt like, oh, I don't know if I've ever really like read something like this before in Jump. Like I, I feel like it had a real air of like, I don't know what you would call it, like a, a real like air of maturity to it. Like you could really tell that like, um, I mean, as as you see like throughout the whole series, like it has this real like appreciation for life 
or whatever that like I that that I really appreciate about it. Yeah, I think uh, when I first read it, one of the things that stood out the most was the fact that there was so much like empathy. Yeah, uh, yeah. The mm. fact that like uh, even when uh, Giyu like is like berating Tanjiro, it always it came from like a like a, a place of concern, which you get like from his inner thoughts. Yeah. Do you wanted to give Tanjiro like kind of the strength to just carry on? Because like, if Ta- Tanjiro was like begging you to spare Nezuko, and you was like, "No, the world is harsh. You're not just going to be able to get what you want just by begging for it. You got to fight for it." So he's trying to lecture Tanjiro from a place of compassion to let him know, "Hey, you need to approach this from a place of strength and be prepared for." hardships in your life and then Tanjiro proved himself that he proved he was capable of protecting Nezuko and proved that Nezuko was also capable of not falling into her demonic instincts and proved themselves that they are capable of surviving in this world without losing themselves. Yeah I think what makes that first chapter so compelling is kind of that like it has this core emotional focus on Tanjiro and Nesco, mm-hmm. and I feel that's not something I see conveyed as well in other first chapters of Jump series. Yeah, and I made this point back in our very first conversation, back when in our review of that first chapter, I made this point that what sets that first chapter apart, and what sets Tanjiro apart as a protagonist, is that... This is not a series about getting stronger to be the best. It's really a series about getting strong to protect the people you love, to protect what you love. And what's so compelling about Demon Slayer is that Tanjiro is trying to fight to protect the one family member that he has left. Like, the one person in his life who is still there that he loves, he wants to protect. and he fights to get stronger in order to be able to protect her and to bring her back to her humanity. And that's what makes Demon Sarah so compelling, is that it is a series about people fighting on behalf for someone else, for their happiness, as much as their own. Yeah, I definitely get that when... um I definitely get that picture when I first read Demon Slayer that it's like, yeah, this is definitely more of a... Or that's derived from empathy and i do think that that first chapter two had a way different pacing than most jump series like first chapter which i you you spend a lot of time with like tanjiro outside of like his family of course the whole setup is that yeah he wasn't home and that's why all this happened when he was away but i like that development of him in that first chapter where we get a full picture of what kind of person he is right then and there rather than and it kind of, as much as I hate to, well, I know Colton's going to love this, but it kind of brings, reminds me of Gintama in the sense that you get a complete package of this character right from the start. Like, and things are added later, become stronger, and his personality changes. Like, no, he's still pretty much the character they one at the end of the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tanjiro's empathy and his kindness and his intuition are all on full display in that first chapter, as well as his bravery and conviction to persevere to protect what he loves. Like, it is such a great first chapter to establish Tanjiro as a character. We do get a 
fully formed sense of what kind of person he is in a way that a lot of New Jump series don't really manage to succeed at doing for the protagonist. But Demon Slayer was off on a very strong start in establishing its characters, and that really carried its through for the entirety of its run. It's interesting, too, because, like, Demon Slayer as a concept was something that Gotage had created, like, very early in their career. I mean, one of their first one-shots was Kagari Gari, which serve as the basis for what Demon Slayer would become. And if you look at that and then the prototype after that, Kisatsu no Nagare, the one thing that's kind of missing between those two and what would become Demon Slayer itself is Tanjiro. There is no Tanjiro character. Um, the main character in Kagari Gane and Kisatsu is just a character that's named Kenshi. And they're just this, like, lone swordsman, no attachment. They have, like, a tragic backstory and all that, but, like, they're very emotionally detached from everything else. And I think replacing Kenshi with Tanjiro, a character that is heavily tied in emotional bonds and family, makes it work a lot better as a story and makes the more brutality and, uh, I guess, like, high stakes of everything have a lot more weight. Yeah, it's deeply personal, Tanjiro's motivations. And in general, the motivations of all the characters. They have something very deeply personal and related to the relationships with other people that they are, you know, being motivated by in their fight, in their journeys. In terms of other comparisons, obviously, another one that we drew upon, a lot of people drew upon, was the comparison to Hunter Hunter's first chapter, like the entire concept of Tanjiro protecting someone he loves from a hunter out to slay it, you know? It's very much like the first chapter of Hunter Hunter going protecting that bear from Kite and whatnot. But I think, again, that also goes back to, like, you know, the perseverance aspect and similarities between those two works of, like, you know, you're up against, like, really big odds in this dangerous world, and you're not always going to be able to protect what you want to or, or it's going to be a struggle to survive so you really need to put yourself out there you need, really do need to fight for what you love and to protect what you love yeah i feel the hunter hunter comparisons are inescapable for a lot of people and i mean final selection has a body count on par with hunter exam like a lot of those kids die yeah um and you can definitely tell uh, why togashi endorsed the series yeah. so early on <laughs> even though it's not a cruel world in terms of out like it is an uncompromising one the series does not shy away that death is always around the core it is also a possibility for these characters and they are always very vulnerable to it but that also is what makes the series just so compelling is because there is that sense of imminent danger there is that sense that one false mood and once they could meet their ends. So they really do have to fight, persevere on in the face of that. And they don't let that deter them from doing what they need to do and what's right. Yeah, like, I mean, a lot of Gotage's influences, too, are, like, very heavily, deeply rooted in Jump. Like, they've mentioned before, like, Naruto, Bleach, Jojo, and uh, especially Gintama. Gintama is one of the reasons Gotage submitted their manga to Jump in the first place. It all goes back to Gintama. <laughs> you can hear the arrogance in this voice. Let's cut him down. Uh, but, but another series that Gotuki is a big fan of is Berserk. Mm -hmm. 
In terms of comparisons to Berserk, I would agree, also just on the sense of the comparisons of Hunter Hunter, is that these are worlds in which, you know, they don't shy away from death, and that happens to a lot of characters, both incidental and established, and it can happen suddenly, it can happen, you know, even cruelly sometimes. But the characters have to, you know, again, persevere through all this to fight to you know, protect what they love and whatnot. So that's a common comparison that yeah. I, I think you could make with Berserk. I'd, I'd say the other thing, too, is uh, Gotuge, I think, mentions it either, I think it's around volume 15 or 16, that they were really into UFO table anime mm. when they started getting to manga. If you look at the timeline for that, that'd be around the time where, like, uh, Garden of Sinners and mm. Fate Zero and Fate Stay Night were yeah. really in the zeitgeist. That's interesting. So, as the big UFO table, and specifically, you know, Fate, Garden Sinners fan, what do you think thematically is the connection between the works? I'd say... Suffering! (laughs) (laughs) Suffering, yes, I agree. I mean, mean, they're certainly differing a lot of suffering, (laughs) but, I mean, against perseverance in the face of suffering, is that what we want to go back to? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, if you look at, let's say, like, Kiritsugu's story in Fate Zero. Mm-hmm. Ah, that is such a good comparison. Kiritsugu and Yorichi, let's say. Because yep. these are both characters who, they had something they really believed in. They had these ideals they really believed in. But they weren't really able to accomplish them. And so they kind of left kind of a solemn life where they had lingering regrets. But the kindness that they show to other people people that was passed on to them and so their feelings their dream and what they wanted to do that was passed on from them and down to uh those they left behind when they were gone like i think that that is like a really good connection there yeah and i'd say like if you look at say like garden of sinners like you can see the burden that like shiki has from like her past and then her like relationship and bottle with kokodo Obviously, like, the sibling relationship between Tanjiro and Nezuko is a bit different from that. But emotionally, it's a very similar in how, like, they want to stick together. They want to stay alive. They want to live better lives yeah. by overcoming the challenges that they're facing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I feel like uh, that, uh, like, adding on to the Kiritsugu thing with uh, Yorichi, like, I think Tanjiro is also a pretty good foil to, like, uh, Emiya or Shiro, because... Uh, the yeah. way that they both like take up that mantle of like protector, but also their personalities aren't actually that aggressive as like uh for for the kind of stories that they are, both of those characters aren't like the very typical like super macho, very like hot blooded kind of like male protagonist. Not at all. Yeah, and like you, you even see like elements of like them being more more like a caretaker in a sense, like. Uh, it, it's something that like male characters and like shonen properties don't really take on that kind of role where they're used to taking care of other people. So in a sense, they they act more like a parent or a guardian rather than like uh like you know like a rambunctious kid. Even though like they do have their moments where they could be comfortable enough to actually act their age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another really good point and point of comparison between those characters. Tanjiro, of course, as an older brother, he was always pushing himself to take care of his younger siblings. And similarly, Shiro, you know, from a young age, he pretty much 
takes care of a lot of the other people in his household in terms of doing chores, cooking. I mean, there's a reason why there's the today's menu with Emmy a family spinoff. Like, he takes on a lot of domestic responsibilities. He is a caretaker. And both of these characters approach other people from a place of kindness and empathy, first and foremost. And they right. aren't, like, all driven by this just this desire of revenge or seeing other people as just, like, unreasonable enemies. Like, they do try to understand other people. Yep. Yeah, and this is why folks Kanoko Nasu endorse Demon Slayer. <laughs> it all comes back. I mean, yeah, they share similar views, Kotoke and Nasu. Now, if only we could figure out why Osamu Akimoto endorsed Demon Slayer. I mean, maybe they just really like it. Yeah. Or they like the gags or something, who knows? The Demon Slayers are cops. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you can make that comparison. If we want to draw, like, a parallel between demons and people who are outcasts from society, driven to make crime, you know, murder, or just other sorts of crimes, like, then that does, by comparison, also make Demon Slayers, like, law enforcers. Like, they are there to kind of root at out and suppress these people who are outcasts from society and causing havoc. And a lot of these demon slayers, they just approach demons as enemies and they slay them without really second thought to their previous humanity. But Tanjiro, meanwhile, is always thinking about and pays respect to, hey, these people were once human. There was a reason that they became demons and he tries to understand that. And he, even though he does not compromise on slaying demons, especially because they have amassed such a body count, he does, at the end of their lives, extend a hand of kindness and understanding and reassurance to them as they pass away and gives them closure by showing that he has understood them and understood that the pain that they were holding inside and that manifested in them going on this wrong path of becoming demons. But also, literally, at the end of the series, Sanemi and Genya become gods. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, demon slayers, they are gods. <laughs> <laughs> I never really thought about it like that before, but I guess that's, I guess the comparison's pretty apt. Um, I, I guess um, something I thought was really interesting that I, I made note of when uh, I was kind of doing my own Demon Slayer thread on Twitter was that, um, and I, I don't know if you guys have like checked it out, but um, I remember finding a like an AP article about like why in particular Demon Slayer has like really struck a chord with like Japanese audiences at this time in particular, because uh you know, the, the, the article in particular draws comparisons to, like, you know, what we're going through with, you know, the pandemic right now and uh, people constantly losing their loved ones to the pandemic, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, basically comparing it to, like, the demons and whatnot. Uh, I, I thought it was really interesting. And, like, I could, like, I think a story about our main character persevering through tragedy, I guess you could say, is pr probably one of the biggest reasons that, like, you know, people have really, like, taken a liking to the series, because, unfortunately, it's probably relatable for a lot of people, and I think that's probably why it struck a chord so much with Japanese audiences in particular. Absolutely. It's definitely, like, the right story for this right time and place that we're at, where, yeah, we do need stories that are about perseverance through hardship and tragedy, and not just persevering, but finding, achieving a better life through that. Like, that there is that hope that you never lose sight of, and then ultimately is realized in a better life for you and your loved ones. Like, that is, I think, at the core, a demon's are and a core part of, like, why it's appeals to resonate, as well as the fact that it is, like, 
a multi-generational story and theme that can be applied because this is also a story about how the things that we do in life, like even if we don't achieve like what we want to in life, like our feelings are the actions we do, they matter. They are passed down. They have an impact on other people who can carry on that will and who can achieve those things. So that theme of legacy as well in Demon Slayer is also why I think that not only was this so resonant with, you know, younger people, but also with older people in Japan. This is why I think a lot of people of all ages are really drawn to Demon Slayer because it does have that sense of hope and optimism that, you know, the things we do in life, the suffering that we go through, the hardships that we face, they will all pay off. There is all meaning to it in the end. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate this conversation in particular because, um, you know, as, as someone who was, uh, you know, I guess getting back into Demon Slayer after, like, spending so much time away from it since its uh, initial jumpstart run... You know, when when it did hit big, I kept seeing everybody online being like, "Well, I don't get it. Why is Demon Slayer popular? It's not. It's 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 just another shonen. I don't know why people like this. Like, uh, people legitimately like wondering like why it hit so big. And I mean, I, I'm I'm not saying that's not you know, uh, obviously it is worth kind of like dissecting and exploring because it is it is a huge phenomenon that like is really kind of interesting to think about. But like. You know, it was kind of distressing for a while to kind of see like such reductive takes. And I mean, that that's that just comes with anything becoming popular or whatever. People are always going to shit on the popular thing. But like, you know, like uh, kind of thinking on it, like and especially after like reading all of it, I do. I do obviously think there's a reason why it's like hit so big. And like, you know, I will admit, you know, going into it, I legitimately was wondering, like, well, is this going to be overblown? Like, am I going to like it? But honestly, it's. For for the very few criticisms I have of it that maybe we'll touch on later, um, I'd say it's like eighty percent like really solid storytelling, and it's just a really good comic. Like it's it's just good. Like I can see why people like it. Yeah, it's pretty excellently put together. Just the connections that Gotoge makes between all these thematic ideas and how they develop their story, like. It is very impressive. Like, there is so much thought put into the construction of the story and the relationships between these characters and how that all ties into the ultimate messages of the story. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's really superbly constructed. The people who just look at the series for its shonen storytelling archetypes and tropes really do miss the forest for the trees because there is so much more that informs the construction and the contents of Demon Slayer as a story than just those tropes and those common trappings between other battle shonen works. And it's not that Demon Slayer isn't itself unique in a lot of these ideas. I mean, we've even talked about series on this podcast that express similar ideas, but it's just the way the series expresses them in its story. Like, the execution of it, the characters, the time and place, and just the combination of all these elements, as well as, of course, the time it's come out in, and the resonance it's had with people because of that, and because of all these other factors, like, that is what has fueled it into being just such a really cutting hit, like, such a really poignant, powerful, resonant work with so many people, with such a large audience, not just Japan, but worldwide. Mm-hmm. And it's funny to kind of think about it, too, because, like, it's not like Demon Slayer was a hit right off the bat. Not at all. Like, I was looking at the initial volume sales for the first volume of Demon Slayer, and, like, they weren't bad, but, like, they weren't exactly, like, 
what you'd expect from a breakout hit. It was like under, I think like under 16,000 for like the first week, which I mean. Yeah. And middling TOC, like there was a worry, I believe I remember early on, of Demon Slayer being canceled. And you definitely can feel kind of that worry in some of the early story decisions, particularly in like the early teens when Muzan is introduced. That definitely feels like a moment like, okay, we don't know how much longer we might have with the story. So let's you know, not wasting more time. Let's put the villain out here. Let's try and work towards some sort of path towards a conclusion in case that this doesn't pan out. And obviously it did, but yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely how it always read to me. But yeah, I mean, I remember I only read the series initially uh, through the end of final selection before not keeping up with the weekly chapters until it was officially picked up by Viz. But yeah, I just remember that from the grapevine and then just reading through the series, it definitely feels that way that the series did have to adapt and adjust to changes in its popularity and kind of struggling with finding an audience early on. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think like transitioning fairly quickly from like the more, uh, Demon of the Week from uh, to what ended up being the Asakusa arc was probably a good idea, especially since a lot of the characters and elements introduced in that arc were what were the foundations of Kagari Gari. Yeah. Like Tameo, uh, Yushiro, and what ended up becoming Muzan right. were the featured characters of Kagari Gari. Mm-hmm. So it definitely seems like that was a more uh, comfort zone for Gotage compared to Maybe some of the elements that they had thought up uh, earlier, or I guess later after, like the initial concept, and having the time to actually work with kind of the core concept again probably was a bit more approachable. Yeah, and that isn't to say that the early part of the story was unfocused or had no direction. In contrast, or I actually think the final selection arc, that first 10 or so chapters, is actually a really superb story. I think it's very, like, emotional. Again, it brings a lot of connections it makes together. It's really compelling. I think there's a reason why they could package that as, like, a movie in Japan, like, before the anime came out. They had those first five episodes, like, as a film they played before the show came in. Like, because it is a very compelling story on its own. I do think that first mission arc that followed it, like, I also think that has its place in the story to show, like, what a typical Demon Slaying mission was, but that also did feel, well, are we going to have a series of uh, stories like this that might not be the most compelling avenue? So I think they made a great decision in introducing Musa, introducing the goal of the plot, the driving force of, like, okay, here's this guy we want to defeat. Here is this path towards bringing Nezuko back to humanity let's move forward with that and let's establish all these elements that are we're going to build upon over time and develop towards that final confrontation and final goal Mm -hmm. you know actually going back to um kind of its popularity a bit something else I was going to bring up until and you know but like you said I I don't I don't think any of the early stuff is like bad or anything but I I for, for me specifically, I I really felt like because for for the for the longest time because I I I eventually like you know got back into it through the anime and you know uh, watching through most of it you know I, I guess up until like the uh the, the like the spider arc or whatever it's called um I think it was up until then where you know Demon Slayer for the longest time was like a series that I kind of liked but I never really liked loved or anything I, I never really had any like strong feelings about it 
but but I think it was I think it was up around then and then like moving from there into like the very last couple of episodes where we kind of like meet all the Hashira and we get to kind of explore like Kanao as a character near the end, which that episode where we get to like see her past and like uh, Tanjiro basically teaching her to like think for herself. That's probably actually like my favorite episode of season one in particular. It's such a really good like emotional episode, but um. I think it was at that point where I was like, okay, I can, I can see what this thing is trying to do. I'm really digging it. Um, and I don't, I don't know how many people like feel the same way, but it, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it, it took me a while to kind of like really get into it. And I wonder, I wonder if maybe like it's because people have only like seen the anime and the anime has only covered so much so far, uh, is maybe the reason why some people kind of feel the way they do and don't really understand like why Demon Slayer resonates with people as much maybe i mean some people just might not click with it and that's okay no, yeah, i for do sure. think though the more you read a demon slayer the more that you can understand the big picture of it yeah. and what the story is trying to say and the direction of the story and the characters like i think then obviously you can say okay like this is actually really put together has a really great thoughtful message that is very relevant and resonant to these times that we're living in and just in general for a lot of people so yeah i I think that you know the more experience you have with the story like it just gets better and better up to a certain point and yeah i do think i'm curious to see like you know how mugen train resonates with a lot of people because that sets the foundation for a lot that comes after it in terms of inheriting legacy and and carrying out another person's will and living up to that, but also, you know, acting upon the trust and fate other people have put into you and overcoming from a tragic situation to achieve success and persevering on. And yet, you know, there's going to be a lot of interesting things, I think. I'm curious to see how people react to Mugen Train and then the story arcs going forward from that, because that's, you know, going to be some of the most raw and super emotional stuff of the story. But I also think, you know, back to that first season, like there's a reason why besides the incredible animation, that episode 19, the fight with Rui was so resonant. Like if it was just cool animation, it was just like impressive animation. I don't think it would still stick in the minds of people, but it's also because of the emotional power of like the, and the music. Well, yes, but also the (laughs) narrative of Tanjiro and Nezuko's bond and the fighting like someone who wants to create a family through these fake bonds of like force and coercion and punishment whereas Nezuko and Tanjiro they have this true genuine bond of love and together their combined efforts are able to you know beat this representation of this of these false relationships and trying to construct these false relationships like that's a really great thematic and emotional idea and it's executed over beautifully and it's true just not of the anime that is still so true in the manga like it still works extremely effectively and i also think that's why that not a gumo mountain arc that spider family arc is like where the series really binds itself and really starts delivering on all cylinders in terms of its thematic emotional ideas and how it uses characters is it really a coincidence that it happened in a forest arc just like the Chudin exam. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I don't know. I mean, just because they're in a forest, I don't really see any other comparisons to make with that forest of deck section. I know. I just, I just felt like I had to say something because you took like literally the exact thing I was thinking about to answer Colton's question. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, I remember, though, like, even before the anime came out and, like, the community for Demon Slayer was very small, mm-hmm. people were always like, okay, once all these other people actually go and read Nautical Mountain, they'll be sold. They'll be in love. And that's literally what happened. When we heard it was two cores, I was like, yes, at least, oh my god, we have we have a chance of having this part animated. Thank God, because that's <laughs> that's literally what would hook everyone. I mean, I I think I think um in terms of like uh the overall animation and like the amount of like set pieces and stuff, like I, I think that's probably the best part of the season. Like le- legitimately I had tried the first episode and I was like, okay, this is kinda neat, but I I didn't really feel the need to like watch it weekly at the time. And then when I started seeing gifs of uh Zenitsu's fight against the other spider dude, like th- that that was the thing that like convinced me to like get back on it. Like, oh man, this shit is raw. I gotta see this. <laughs> uh, you were hit by your hubris. <laughs> Um, and I, I think I also made mention of this on Twitter too, but like the Demon Slayer manga is really interesting to me because um I would put Demon Slayer in that category of different jump properties like Yu Yu Hakusho and Gintama, where it's like the manga is good, but I do think the anime like significantly improves upon like certain aspects of the story and like the fights and stuff. Like I, I, I do think Gotoke and obviously this is their like first work so i don't i don't want to sound like i'm just like shitting on them or anything but like i do think gotoge's like obviously they're like a very competent artist and i would say even like a good artist especially like a- as the series goes on i do think like their fight choreography gets even better but i will say that there are definitely some points in the manga early on where i'm just like man ufo table really went like all out and like making this like even better while i agree with that i'm not sure i feel that it's just a all-across-the-board improvement for me, because I feel, well, Euphodeo does an amazing job, and the anime is beautiful. I feel like there's a certain charm to the artwork and paneling that's lost mm-hmm. in the anime. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, Gotoke is a great comics artist, and I think one of the appealing parts of her art that's lost in the anime is just, like, her, you know, scribbly kind of comedic doodles that are just always so charming, add so much, like, character and lightheartedness. Yeah, it's like, the anime cleans up a lot of that stuff, and while to some extent it's expected, but to another extent it's like, that's what makes Jimin Slayer kind of charming, is the fact that it looks sort of jank sometimes. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I, and yeah. I don't have a problem with the anime either, though I will say that, I mean, I I know maybe I'm not going to get a lot. Well, no. The thing that got me into anime, just going back to that conversation, or really the series in general, was way before even the Spider family arc, which was just the scene during the Drum Demon arc, where, um, where, um... Not even that fight in necess- necessarily, even though it was a good fight, and I liked how that was concluded... It was Zenitsu protecting this, uh, Nezuko's, like, box. That was the part that I got, I got into the series, like, because he doesn't know who Tanjiro is, and this whole time, he's kind of, like, depicted, and unfortunately he doesn't get too much better, but he's depicted as this kind of, like, spineless coward, but he realized how important this box is to Tanjiro, and he's taking this beating for it. And he's like, for no other reason other than the fact that Tanjiro was nice to me, and this is important to him, so I'm gonna protect it. Yeah, and he knows that there's a demon in the box, and he yeah. doesn't know why Tanjiro is carrying a demon, but he believes in Tanjiro. He trusts Tanjiro, so even so, like, he's going to protect what's important to Tanjiro. Like, it's such a great character moment, and yeah, it's 
again, ties back into, you know, not just protecting things that are important to yourself, but protecting things that are important to other people close to you, too. That's also such a big point of the story. And yeah, I mean, also that arc has like a great moment of Tanjiro extending empathy to a demon with Kyogai and Kyogai's story of like, you know, he was like a failed poetry writer and became a demon because he really couldn't succeed in that. And that just grew a bunch of resentment in him. But then airing the fight like his poetry it just kind of spills out from the room but Tanjiro realizes writing on it and that it's important and that he doesn't step on it in that just small moment that shows Kyogai that yes there are people like even if there are people who don't acknowledge like there's that is important to me the work the poetry I made like there are people who respect and acknowledge that and that gives him some sense of closure that yes like he was seen like he like people do acknowledge the effort that he put in and what he was trying to do and I think that's something that carries over to a lot of relationships and demon characters in the rest of the series like this idea of like a lot of them became demons because they really want to be acknowledged and they wanted to be like seen and respected and they worked like getting that and by becoming a demon they hope to achieve that and then ultimately really only in that do they realize that they either had that or long or someone does give that to them finally yeah like i think one thing that really stuck out to me about demon slayer compared to other series in like jumps lineup at the time was how like hard it went on the theme of empathy mm-hmm. like i hadn't really seen like that exploration of, like, actual antagonists to that level since, like, Shaman King, I feel, in the magazine. Because, like, there's a very heavy focus on why these people became who they are. Mm -hmm. And not just looking at it from the lens of, okay, they are bad people and they deserve what's coming to them. There is a nuance to it. And, like, even the worst of villains in the series get that treatment. Like, Yeah, you can understand them. This is jumping ahead of it, too, but the one that really always stuck out to me was Akaza. Yeah. Because for the longest time, the series was building up, like, okay, this is going to be a revenge fight for Tanjiro. He's going to be going in there, like, guns blazing. (laughs) And he does. Like, at the beginning of the fight, he's screaming, Akaza! And it's like, okay, you're going to get a hype revenge moment. But by the end of the fight, like, Tanjiro has let go of that revenge. Yeah. He's able to see beyond his own animosity and really think about who was Akasa? Why did he become like this? And is there any way I can help him leave this world without regrets? Yes, and what's beautiful about it is that Akasa ultimately, he does acknowledge that those feelings from Dr. He also reflects upon his own past and what he really wanted out of his life and how he's kind of lost his way and he does accept that defeat and goes gracefully like I just love the smile he gives to Tanjiro before he really destroys himself yeah like, that, that's, that's the, such an amazing moment that's the best part of it it's like Tanjiro's not the one that does the final blow Akaza decides to end on his own terms and thematically, I love that idea of the transparent world of, like, not just only, like, physically they're seeing through things, but also, like, it's not just about the physical things you're seeing through, it's also just seeing beyond what's in front of you, just seeing, like, what is underneath, kind of emotionally, it just being aware 
of your surroundings in that way. So I think that's also just a poignant, beautiful idea that explores through like this concept that's also applied in this battle situation, but also reflects thematically upon what the series is trying to see as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the the fact that like the key to that and like the key to beating Akaza was actually like letting go of your anger and like being able to be in a selfless state. Uh, and that was also what Akaza was actually like in his demon form, like what he was striving for, for like the peak of martial arts. But like, yeah, like, ah, man, like thematically, that's so that's so fucking good. Like just the fact that it lines up with the fact that uh, in order to really like break the chains of like a uh, revenge and, and hate and like the, the cycle, basically, Tanjiro, basically, he got his quote unquote power from that, like not relying on his actual like emotions for like in like a very like a negative spot right he had gained control of his emotions that's what gave him power and that's what allowed him to be able to fight akaza and you know score some really good blows and it's so different than in a lot of other shonen series where power-ups are often motivated by that anger by that kind of like passion whereas with Tanjo, he really had to calm himself and like you know approach the fight just from a place of like emotional calm and clarity and he got that from like his bond with his father like remembering that yeah absolutely i like i mean going on that theme and jumping a little further ahead i do like the idea of like demons coming to that point where they realize what i what i am now even though i became a demon to accomplish a thing what i became now isn't what what reflects me you know yeah. I, it, it's it's a thing with the kokushibo fight too oh my god like, yes yes he yes. he they don't technically defeat him if he had if he had gone you know full you know uh if he had gone full ape shit on them they would have lost but it wasn't until he saw what he was now they realized this isn't me this is what not what reflects me and he let himself go yeah he even reached that same state that akaza did where he was like regenerating yes like, he realized he had lost his way as a samurai. Like, he wanted to achieve the pinnacle of what being a samurai could be. It's so similar to Akaza in that way. Like, yes, he he realizes that he has just lost sight of what he's become, which is so great because thematically and related to his character design, Akaza is this character that has all these eyes, but he can't really see, like, with clarity, like, what he actually wanted. It's just... Until, like, it's too late. It's just so great. Ooh, theming! Like, that thought. Yeah. Like, (laughs) uh. It's funny, like, the one time that the series doesn't really do that is Doma. And even with Doma... There's more times than that, because I don't think Gyoko really has, like, any sympathetic element to him. Even Hantango. Like, Hantango is a character who, you know, we see a glimpses of the past like in as a human like he was someone who like just ran away from responsibility like he always tried to paint himself as a victim that everyone was out to get him never really owned up for the you know things that he did do that were bad and so like i do appreciate with demon slayer that you know not all the demons are are like come from a sympathetic place or like i mean i do think Hintenko is like sympathetic or interesting but like like not all of them are like were selfless or tragic like some of them were just you know in their selfishness they became demons and like they ultimately even then aren't really able to achieve what they wanted because the way that they approach things is just from a place selfishness and you can't truly achieve like successes without being considerate of others and paying respects to what is important to others 
And considering other people important mm. besides yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. But what I was specifically mentioned with Doma and why I brought him up is like, his backstory was always so fascinating mm. to me because of how warped his mentality yeah. was. He remembers everything about his past. He's just like, yeah, I was always kind of like a little shit. <laughs> yeah, I was, he was always, always a sociopath. A sociopath. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And like, you can kind of tell, like, yeah, he, he's kind of awful, but also. It's because of the way he was raised. Like, yes, right. I, love I mean, that. that's another thing is that the upbringing of people that does affect the kind of people they become. It does go back to like you know what you leave behind for others, like how the impact you have on others. That is going to affect the people they become and like how they will behave and live in the world and how they will see the world. Like, I think that's a point that's made really beautifully with the upper rank six demons. Like Gutaro Daki, like Gutaro is reflecting upon Daki could have been a completely different person if I hadn't raised her and if I hadn't taught her to just think only for herself and to get what's hers and only care about that. Like she could have grown up to become like a much kinder, better person than if I had raised her. And so, yeah, like the environment that you're brought up in, the values that you learn from that, that does shape the kind of person you are and what you ultimately become. Yeah, it's it's something that's mentioned. It's something that's mentioned even during Kyojiro's thing. His dad even says, you know, you guys are really more of a. Both of his sons are more of a product of their strong mother, and I and I really like that moment as well. Just the fact that I mean, even as he comes to his senses and realizes the person he's become ever since, you know, uh, ever since his tragedy and how he struck out against his sons and everything like that. I love having the also having that um especially as somebody with like me that does whose father isn't in his life that having a strong mother still shaped them to be pretty good people. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really ties back in again to this thing of legacy inheritance. Like what you do to others like the lessons you teach, the messages you impart, those are going to be carried by the Water people who have learned from you and they'll be passed on and like i think that's just like s- such a very point idea we see both like the positives of that in like how the hinokama kagura has been passed down through the generations of Tanjiro's family we see negatives of that like in the case of gitaro daki and like other characters like doma who ha- learned all the wrong lessons and grew up to be not great people because of that mm-hmm. you can also see that in canal and like her fight and the fact that, like, she was raised by both Kanai and uh, Shinobu, but, like, Shinobu is, like, such a different person, even though she puts on that facade of being, like, well, she, like, she does she does smile, and it's, like, it's sincere, but it's also a mask for her. It also, yeah, yeah. And, like, hides her anger. Yeah, and Kanai also has that same anger when she lashes out at Doma. It's just, ooh, spicy. <laughs> yeah, oh man, that's such a great character detail of Shinobu too, that she started to act a lot more like Kanai after Kanai passed away. Because we see like in the flashback with, you know, Kanao and like when they adopted her, like Shinobu used to be a lot more aggressive and like brash and out and like outspoken, not as kind of like a kind in her manner as Kanai as she is later on. And that's because she adopted that personality from Kanai. Like she also is trying to become so much like her sister to honor a memory of her. But like, she also is just kind of hiding still that deeper anger that's just boiling inside her. And that she does like let out in that fight with Doma and vindictively too. But then also like Kanao, like Kanao, so her 
ultimate growth of like being originally like emotionally stunted because of like all the horrifying trauma and abuse she suffered before being adopted by Kanai and uh, Shinobu, but then like slowly learning to open up to other people and being in touch with her emotions again and thinking about what she wants and what she wants to fight for. And then that just exploding in the fight with Doma where she does like finally like really show her expressiveness and her anger and just really finally has kind of come into her own just emotionally there too. Mm -hmm. On the topic of like the themes of inheritance and Demon Slayer, I really love how it's not divided solely off of traditional like bloodlines. Yes. It's carried like within emotional and kind of weight based on like just general relationships and bonds. Like, you see this even with, like, you know, Kamikagura, where yes. Yoruichi gives it to Tanjiro's... Sumiyoshi. Yeah, Sumiyoshi, Tanjiro's ancestor. And it's like, Sumiyoshi wants to carry it on for everything Yoruichi's helped his family with. Yeah, and Sumiyoshi, Tanjiro's family, they weren't swordsmans. They're chakra sellers by nature. But because, you know, Yoruichi, like, he impacted our lives, and we don't really even know explicitly what he did. He just saved their lives, and he formed a forced relationship with them because of that. And he, they honor what he did for them by passing down the Hinamakanikagura, and through the generations, you know, that was passed on so expertly and ultimately it reached someone and was taught to someone who was able to carry out Yorichi's will. And Yorichi is not an ancestor to Tanjo. He's just the descendant of someone who Yorichi helped once and who really respected and wanted to honor Yorichi. And I just think that's just a beautiful point and idea. It's, it's not just directly like your descendants that you can have an impact on. It's like people who aren't related to you, who are like just people who tangentially you touched in life, who then like are able to inherit like the will you've passed on, the lessons you've taught. Like, I think that's such a beautiful idea. It's just show that, you know, connections between people, they stand beyond just immediate family. Like it can be really far reaching in that way. I can't believe the earrings are the straw hat. oh my god yes and it really kind of comes to like a i guess a peak with the kokoshibo oh my god yes because the whole part of kokoshibo's motivation becoming a demon was the fact that like he and yorishi had like limited lifespans like they in kokoshibo was afraid of like What's going to happen when I die? Yeah, he was afraid of not leaving behind a legacy. He was afraid of, like, dying before he could ever master a thing, before he could ever be remembered as someone great. And so he became a demon so that he could prolong his life, so he could reach that level of mastery and kind of preserve himself in that way. Like, it doesn't matter if no one else remember him if he's still alive. And if he can still hone his skills to perfection. But ultimately, like, he realizes in in his own, in the fight, like, he he essentially kills the legacy that he left behind. He kills his one surviving descendant. And that legacy, that, what he left behind, what he didn't create as a demon, he created as a human. Like, he forsook everything when he became a demon. Mm-hmm. And so, ultimately, that's the tragedy of his character. Like, he... He became a demon to preserve his own legacy, but ultimately that just destroyed it. Yeah. But it also kind of goes back he to He destroyed what, it with his own hands. Like, that's just so freaking beautiful. How ironic. It also goes back to what Yorichi said, though. Like, their legacies don't die with their bloodlines. Yes. 
Because you still see the powers that they learned and mastered being used by everyone in that fight. Yeah, the breeding techniques are passed on to generations, and that plays in so great with the Ubiyashiki family. Like, they also all die young. But, they, you know, the organization, the Imster organization, it persists throughout the years. Like, the successors, they all inherit the will of their predecessors. And I love the conversation between Ubiyashiki and Muzan, where Ubiyashiki is saying, you know, even if I die, my life itself is not that important. Even if I die, like, what I'm a part of, the Demon Slayer organization, that's still gonna live on. That's still gonna persevere. Meanwhile, Muzan, if you die, all the demons are gonna disappear. You're not going to leave any legacy behind. You have not touched the lives of any other people positively in a way that is going to resonate and continue on after you die. Mm-hmm. It's such a great, great idea. Such a great team. Muzan was like, I will simply not die. <laughs> yeah, and that's so brilliant. It's because at the end of the series, Muzan is defeated. He dies. He realizes that... You know, he could not defeat the legacy that was left behind by Yorichi and the Ubishikis and the Demon Organization, and he dies. But he wants, in one last act of spite, to leave behind his own legacy, so he turns Tanjiro into a demon that can carry on his will and his feelings, a demon that will conquer his achieve, like, what he wanted to do was, like, he wanted to be immortal because Muzan as a character, like, from Burke, we see, like, he always was vulnerable to death and afraid of the possibility of that, so he just wanted to have an everlasting life and immortal life and escape from death. And ultimately he creates in Tanjiro someone, a demon who can create the sun, potentially something that could be forever living, like the ultimate culmination of what he worked towards. But ultimately, like he can't control Tanjiro. He can't bring him down with him because of the connections Tanjiro has made with other people, literally lifting him up and pulling him out. Our bonds give us strength. (laughs) Absolutely. That moment legitimately like made me start tearing up. Like that 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 one page of you know Tanjiro being lifted by the people who he's made bonds with and the people that you know unfortunately have had to like sacrifice themselves along the way. Like fuck, I that's probably the most single most powerful image in all of Demon Slayer. I'd argue. And literally leaving Muzan all alone, like just crying out, "Don't leave me here!" Like yes, because Muzan. As someone who lived only selfishly for himself, he created no bonds with other people. And yes, in that, he is just all alone. And that's just is the tragedy of his character. But that's also the hubris of his character. Like, he got what he deserved. Meanwhile, Tanjo is someone who created all these connections with other people. Like, he is lifted up and he is saved and brought back to his humanity to live, like, the rest of his life happily because of that selflessness. And that he did form these connections with people. Like, it's just such a great great parallel great again thematic idea like demonster is so strong with these ideas Mm, totally agreed i was just gonna say i don't want to back out too much but like hearing what you guys said about kokushibo made me think of toguro and how similar how similar the two of them are where they both became you know supernatural or demons i guess and they became supernatural entities in the sense that they're like they don't want to die without accomplishing anything or they really regretted the fact that they would get old and, you know, their, that their, their highlight in life would only last a second while they're young. And then they just go on to be old and irrelevant. And I just like the idea of just that. Like, of course, in Toguro's, like, case, he came to a point where it's just like, he wanted to fi- have, he wanted to be destroyed at, finally. Well. Yeah, he basically wanted to punish himself. Exactly. Yeah. And then, but you have Kokushibo who, 
he only he came to the realization like maybe way too late that you know I I'm no longer what I set out to be and he let himself go and I and I just love that I know I keep bringing it up but I just love how that just ends that way where it is a thing that he puts himself out rather than waiting for somebody to kind of come along and do it for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess just kind of while we're talking about we're we're kind of in final arc stuff now and I, I will say that. Um, I would say Demon Slayer's final arc, I'm going to say 90% of it is really, really good. And, like, the 10% that I have, like, issues with personally, like, even though I still have issues with certain storytelling beats and maybe, like, certain things could have been explored more, um, I, I do think that, like, thematically, it's so strong all the way through that, like, it doesn't really bother me that much. Oh, yeah. I mean, we obviously we on the podcast have discussed this, too, in the sense that, yeah, it did feel like there were a couple of things that could have been maybe expanded on or changed slightly differently for the final arc that we felt like they were a little bit lacking. But overall, it was still a really great ride all the way through. I mean, I will say one thing about that, I guess looking back at it that bugged me a little bit was the fact that we did just go from normal arc to final arc. It's very easy to tell that, like, Gotoke was like, okay, let's just get into the final. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, they kind of set up a little bit at the end of the swordsmith, like, Yeah, I mean, once Nezuko... Yeah, there is a training arc between the swordsmith village and the final arc that's, like, you know, build up to the final arc. Yeah, and, like, yeah, once once Nezuko becomes a demon that can conquer the sun and moves on you know, goes after her, like, that is the setup. That is the moment where we're moving again. Like, I think the transition is smooth. What I would have liked is because the final arc is stuffed, like, it has a lot to do, because there's still characters among the Ashra that need to be explored. There's still character arcs that need to be resolved in the final arc that they needed to be room for, and there's all this backstory stuff that informs stuff that happens in present that needs to be told. Like, there's a lot that the final arc has to accomplish, and which is why it's, like, a third of the series. (laughs) So... What I would have liked and what I think would have served the story well is if there was, like, an arc still before the final arc. And I don't think it had to be, like, directly after Swordsman Village. What I would have liked to see would have been an arc parallel to Swordsman Village. Because in Swordsman Village, we have Tanjiro Nezuko being focused on Zenitsu and Inosuke aren't there. If we had an arc parallel to it where we see what Zenitsu and Inosuke are up to, and through that arc, we can you know, accomplish, like, a lot of development for some other characters that had to have some kind of more rush development in the last Obanai. arc. Obanai, yes, like, <laughs> Obanai mainly. We needed, like, an arc for Obanai so we didn't have to rush through his backstory in a chapter, like, just a few chapters before the end of the fight. And then also, like, the Kaigaku stuff, I think, could have gotten a lot more room to breed. Like, Kaigaku is a character, like, he's set up in Zenitsu's backstory in the Nakatomo Mountain arc, but that's, it's so long from that point, it's like literally a hundred chapters from that point before he shows up again, that if you were reading this weekly, and you didn't remember, you'd be like, wait, Kaigaku, who is this? But, like, also, I mean... Because another detail that's kind of, like, just mentioned but kind of glossed over is the fact that Kaigaku was also the person, the kid that... From um, Gomei's backstory. Gome, yeah, yeah, Gomei was taking care of the one who sold out like, the other, the his other kids. Like, literally, that's <laughs> yeah. just mentioned in the... While Gomei's dying and the other kids are telling, oh, we're sorry for driving Kaigaku so And, like, you know, you should really have, like, maybe explored a little more. We needed a little more time to see and explore Kaigaku as a character. I think if we had an arc that, like, focused on 
uh, Zenitsu, Inosuke, Obanai, and Gyome, and then we had Kaigaku in there, and we see, like, Kaigaku as a demon slayer first, up till the moment, like, where Kokushiba meets him, and he turns him into a demon, and then we have, like, all that set up, but going into the final arc for that confrontation with Zenitsu and Kaigaku, but also we get some, like, t- we touch upon Gyome and his connection to Kaigaku, and reflect on that, too, and we could put his backstory and some stuff there. Yeah. Uh, we could have Obanai in there, like, to explore his character. And I think, like, what we could do is, like, maybe we could have done something with the one surviving sister he had who, like, blamed him for the rest of the family's death, even though she was a part of the cult that was going to sacrifice him. Like, maybe she could have become a demon to get revenge on him or something. You could have done something more to also flesh out Obanai as well before that. And you could also have done something with the blue spider lily. Like, you could maybe have the arc be about they discover the blue spider lily and so the... Demon Slayers are, have to fight with demons to take custody of it before, you know, Muzan can get it. And maybe they decide to destroy it. They destroy the Blue Spider Lily. But at that same time, obviously, Sword Street Village is going on, and we have the revelation that Nezuko has become a demon who could conquer the sun. So it doesn't matter now that we, that the Blue Spider Lily couldn't be taken because now Nezuko is that effectively for Muzan instead. So you can do... The Blue Spider Lily thing doesn't have to be dropped then. Like, you could have that thing where, like, it was a focus, but they get rid of that as an element, and then that just allows, like, very smoothly Nezuko to become the Muzan's target from there on out. Like, and not, not to complain too much about the Demon Slayer fan base, but they get way too focused on the Blue Spider Lily. Yeah, it's not <laughs> that important. It's not that important. Like, I, but I think if you were, if we were going to create, like, an arc just to more smoothly iron out a lot of things that were kind of rushed feeling elements of the final arc, I think that's an idea I had that would kind of effectively touch upon a lot of those bases and pretty smoothly i think i would have liked to see that because i think that the, like there are some stuff like that kaigaku stuff obanai stuff that just felt a little too rushed in the final arc mm-hmm. you know what it just sounds to me that lum just wants demon slayer root a <laughs> no <laughs> no, yeah, no. <laughs> I reject I that. Yeah, no. No. no, I'd say like those would all be good improvements, but I think the biggest thing I really wanted in the final arc Nezuko. is more Nezuko. Yeah, you know Nezuko as well. Like, I mean, I get the idea of Nezuko. You know, she regains her humanity. She drives just in time to try and help bring Tanjiro back to his senses. Talk no like jutsu. that's good. However, <laughs> I think we should have had a confrontation between her and Muzan, where she still has demonic powers, but she, as a demon, is finally in control of herself. Her memories have come back, and she can finally, like, express her thoughts, and she can, like, get revenge on Muzan. And I thought an idea that the series was setting up was that Nezuko is kind of like an anti because her blood demon art, it like burns other demons. It can destroy other blood demon arts. So even though she has become like this demon who can come from the sun, like Muzan can't actually absorb her because her blood is poisonous to him. It'll just burn him up and destroy him. So that would be the great ironic thing is like Muzan has created what he wanted, a demon who can conquer the sun, but he can't actually become that himself. You know, Lum, I was, I was thinking about that and I feel like it would have been perfect to, like, tie in the fact that, like, the whole inherited bonds thing or, like, the inherited, like, will and stuff that the fact that uh, Nezuko comes from a family that practices, like, the uh, the Hinokami Kagura that, like, even if, like, she didn't, like, uh, like learn it completely because Tanjiro's the one, like, uh, who inherited that, like, 
Uh, the fact that she turned into a demon and she uh, can, like, resist the sun comes sort of from that. And, like, the fact that, like, no one besides Yorichi was able to actually master sun breathing. And, like, if Muzan had attempted at all to, like, absorb her, that then he would actually feel, like, the actual sun. And that, that would actually almost kill him. So, like... Yeah. Like, I feel like that that could have been a nice way to, like, tie that in. And, like, that, that could be how she defends Tanjiro. I don't know. But, like, that, that's just one idea. It's just... There, there are basically plenty of ways to uh, incorporate Nezuko into that like final arc that I feel like was just uh, it, it was just like put to, put to yeah. the side. It felt like um yeah, it, it's probably the biggest criticism of every anything I think is Nezuko. Like people are like very upset and disappointed like how Nezuko's role in the story ultimately plays out because yeah she gets her fighting moments herself she slowly does get more of a semblance of humanity and recognizes like other people and is able to form relationships like as a demon but ultimately for a lot of the series like she's like effectively like not herself she doesn't she's more like animalistic in nature and well, she's like infantilized too yeah th- that was kind of an issue with me too she, yeah, she is infantilized. Like, you know, she's played up for cuteness a lot, too. And, yeah, that is a disappointing thing. Like, she's, like, not really that much of a character in so much of the series. Like, she is, like... <laughs> that's why there's this comparison. Is all I mean. She's like a Pokemon. You mean she's, like, power from Chainsaw Man? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Power is more of a character. But, I know. Yeah, okay. I, I just... <laughs> uh, but, no, that's why I hear the comparison. Nezuko's like a Pokemon so much. is because that, you know, she's, she's a like... a mascot. She has a personality, but, yeah, she's a mascot. Like, she doesn't have that much agency of a character arc of her own outside of a few choice moments. But, ultimately, there isn't a huge payoff to that mm-hmm. as a demon for her. Like, she just gets cured of her demoness and becomes a human again. Yeah, it's frustrating because, like, near, like, Swordsmith Village, like, she finally feels like she's getting some agency. Yeah, she has and a great moment. Gets... Like, she pushes Tanjiro, like, to go after Hantengo, even though she's going to burn up in the sun. That feels like a moment where she's kind of regained some consciousness semblance of self again. You know, that's a, such a good moment. It's and good, And then it yeah. has to pay off of that act of sacrifice. Like, it pays off because we realize Nezuko is now able to stand in the sunlight. And it, it comes off in the com- conversation with Gyome too, that Tanjiro didn't make that decision to Nezuko made it for him. Yes! Yeah. Like, that's a, that is a proactive choice. That is a choice uh, that carries agency and weight to it. That's all her own. Yeah, then she's asleep. Yeah, then she's everything out. She do have to sleep. Until the end. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean like, doesn't? there was, like, I feel like the easiest way out of all of this like, there was no replacement for Upper Moon 5 for <laughs> Yeah, some you guys talked about this in your podcast. But yes, a great fix for this to give her something would have been Upper Moon 5, the replacement, attacks where Nezuko sleeping, attacks like the Ubiashiki Manor. And then Nezuko awakens, has full semblance of herself as a demon, and is able to fight off the Upper Moon 5 on her own before running towards Tanjiro to try and protect him and then during that run it's okay for her to lose her demonness and become human again but yeah I mean if she had just one payoff where as a demon she has finally fully regained semblance of herself and has like something to do in the final arc before the end that felt like it mattered where she like protected someone using her demonic powers and just showing that she has grown from this journey like the experiences she remembers them and she's able to put 
those into action by protecting a lot of the people that have protected her up until that point. Like, that would have been great. We also might have been able to get some more Uzui action. Yeah! Uzui was pretty good. Doesn't want some more flashy Uzui fun goodness. And maybe some Senjuro could have uh, popped in and showed off, like, what made him, like, one of, a former Hashira, you know? He could have tried defending people much like in the way that his son did. Like, that uh, would have also been a Could have had more Obanai, too, at that point, since we were talking about it. <laughs> so. <laughs> On the subject of Obanai, I was kind of surprised that, like, we got kind of the least out of him out of, like, a lot of the Hashiras, but like, I, I I do I do appreciate that at least in like the final fight with Muzan that he does get to help out Tanjiro a lot, and I'm not saying that necessarily like makes up for a lot of the his lost screen time or whatever potential screen time he could have had throughout the series or whatever, but like I, I at least appreciate that he does have a role in the end. Yeah. I don't have a problem with the content of Obanai's role in the story. It's just that I wish it had given more room to breathe. No, yeah, for sure. It is very awkward that, like, his backstory is crammed in one chapter, like, after the Yorichi backstory in the final arc, too. Like, literally, after we touch upon Tanjiro in his memories, reflecting upon the conversation Yorichi and Sumiyoshi had, that's Obanai's backstory. And then, yes, I mean, like, I just think we could have given that more room to breathe. Also, like, given just a little more room to breathe of the, the relationship between Obanai and Mitsuri. Because we oh, get man, enough I need more of that to so establish bad. that. But, like, we could have explored that more. Explored, like, the relationship more. Uh, yes, 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 yes. But, yeah, it's a good relationship. And Obanai does have some really great contributions in the final fight. There is a section of that final fight where it's just Tanjiro and Obanai for a little bit. So he gets a lot to do. It's just that, again, I just wish he had just a little more before that. No, yeah. And so that all this exposition about the character just didn't come right at the end. Literally, like, yeah. less than 20 chapters before it the end. It felt very forced. I would have much rather him just been involved in one of the other fights, like... I mean, maybe have him fight Kaigaku before Zenitsu fights a one-on-one or something like that. I don't know if there's that much of a connection between Obanai and Kaigaku. There isn't, but like, something... There wasn't an upper-rank five replacement. I think the idea of, like, maybe his sister became, like, a demon to get revenge in Obanai and became new upper-rank five. Maybe that could have been a cool idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that would have been probably the best route, but even just something like, have it not be the final fight, because I feel at that point... No matter what, it was going to feel like an afterthought. Right, because he's no only just one of so many characters at that point, and we need to touch base on all of them and give them, like, a, a payoff and closure and moment in that fight, which the fight succeeds in doing. Like, everyone has a role, and it's so excellent. But, yeah, it's just, again, to give, like, a particular focus on Obanai right at the end just felt a little off, and that's why I feel like a lot of people had their criticisms while reading it weekly. It's because it did feel like the focus was going all over the place at a lot of parts so i uh, when we were reading it just like all at once it like it reads still super well but yeah it does feel like that you got interruptions every now and again that kind of broke the pace of no the yeah i mean it definitely feels like goat game might have had more ideas than they than what we saw absolutely oh it's yeah it's definitely obvious just from the chapter extras too and I feel like yeah. those yeah. those kind of like ideas and stuff that they wrote down, that's like prime material for like whenever the anime gets there to like flesh those things out. Just Ooh, like yeah. see like like in Wano or even like in Yu Yu Hakusho where a lot more of the of the stuff that was depicted got time to breathe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope they 
this is a case where I think that the pace of the anime, like, they did, like, two chapters an episode in that first season. I think, like, even going to the final season, even though it's more high heavy, that might work to its benefit. Like, because if you can slow down, you can flesh out some of the backstory stuff more, which, like, the anime had, like, a lot of anime original stuff that fleshed out backstory stuff. Like, with the backstory of the sister spider, like, they really fleshed that out in yeah, the surprised about anime. That. There's barely any of it in the manga, but it, like, really paints a full picture of that character in a compelling and interesting way. But yeah, I hope they do stuff like that in the anime. Like they continue to flesh things out and maybe even restructure things. Like maybe, again, I do think the open eye thing, maybe that should be restructured and move or earlier, like his backstory. So he yeah. doesn't like interrupt the, the final fight as yeah. much as it does. But I mean, as far as like a final arc goes, I think like considering this is Goat Gate's first series, I'm honestly very happy with it. Like, we all saw what happened with Neverland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing I'll say is that Demon Slayer, it has a satisfying ending. It gives you what you want for all the characters. You feel they all had a role to play in that final arc besides even Nezuko, though, at the end. It's not as much as we'd like, but she has her role at the end. But, yeah, like, it delivers on its thematic ideas beautifully. Like, it all comes together. It's Everything is connected. All these ideas. All these characters. How they feed into those ideas. Like, it's just really beautifully, superbly executed. And the ending of it was so poignant. Like, it makes me cringe so much when I remember people criticizing the twist of, like, Tanjiro moves on, like, giving him his blood and turning him into a demon. People are, like, saying, oh, Demon King Tanjiro. <laughs> like, no. These people were so short-sighted and to miss what the the direction of the story, the, the point of it, that inclusion was. And it just pays off so beautifully and just with such beautiful imagery too. Like the final fight is superbly executed. It is really, really satisfying. I think, I think the one criticism of the mechanic of the fight is that Muzan as a, as a fighter, like he just like stands the place and like waves his tendrils around. And that isn't the most super interesting thing. And it's kind of reminiscent of what Daki did with her OB. So it's not, like, even the most, but it's still, like, the character moments in it, like, what the characters do in it, it is super satisfying. Yeah, I feel like the main thing there is, like, the emotional state of everyone yes. rather than Muzan. Like, Muzan's just whipping a nene. Doing his thing. I mean, but, you know, by now, by the final arc, you should know what Demon Slayer is. So I don't, yeah, I don't really... Yeah. I will admit, yes, I'm disappointed. I was a bit disappointed by that too, but it's not to a point that I was just like the final arc isn't good because of it. By now, no, we, yeah. we we the not emotional content has always been what Demon Slayer is more interested in. So if you're at this at the final arc, like complaining about, well, I expected more of a fight. I mean, I, I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna say that Demon F- Slayer had bad fights. They were all really good, but that was never the series's like focus. That was just like kind of a uh, it was always kind of a side product of the fact that yes, we're in the Shonen magazine. Yes, we're slaying demons and yeah, the fights supplant and support the teams of yeah. the story. I mean, it's also like Muzan said, he's a natural disaster. Yeah, you can't fight <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Galaxy brain Muzan. <laughs> I still love that. Just like Muzan's audacity is just like you guys just keep coming to me. I mean, like I why don't you give up? 
It would be easier. If, it'd yeah. be easier for all People of us. People don't try to fight hurricanes. Come on. I mean, come <laughs> on, man. Guys, I think I think we've all had enough. This is just such a pain. Tragedy is inevitable. I'm just a walking disaster. You don't have to just treat me as such and move on with your lives. Have happy lives. I mean, like I don't have to take personal responsibility. I'm a force. Yeah, people die all the time. You don't get. You don't like. <laughs> I mean, you, come on. You just just go home. Jeez. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt this incredibly great banter, but I do want to say that um, reading through the final arc and especially that final fight, like I I remember when. You know, Demon Slayer was still running week to week, and I, I saw my share of, like, you know, kind of arc fatigue, as we all kind of experience with these uh, uh, longer arcs in big shonen manga or whatever. Like, I, I felt it, too. I'm no stranger to it, obviously. But, like, I'm so I'm I'm glad I got to read this all. Kind of, I, I think I read that final fight in mostly one sitting. I might have taken a break halfway through, but, like, I think reading it all the way through... Uh, just kind of in one sitting and not having to wait week to week, I think definitely as we, again, as we see with pretty much all long running manga, like, you know, there there is a difference between the two experiences. And I personally, I'm glad I got to experience it that way because I know myself well enough to be like, if I were reading Demon Slayer week to week, I think I definitely would have felt the same way. And I think I would have been too fatigued with the arc to kind of see the bigger picture or whatever. So I'm, I'm glad I got to read it through that way because I think... Demon Slayer has one of my favorite, like, um, I don't know what you would call it, like a trope, I guess, in like battle manga in particular, where, and I, I don't think it's something I really see like enough of, but like, I kind of like fights that are like drawn out, but not so drawn out to the point where it's like, oh, can this motherfucker just die already or whatever <laughs> yeah it's not like muzan has like a series of power-ups that like prolong the fight and it's like you think it's over but yeah it's he's not, not. It's like no the fight never has this moment where there's like a false finish yeah like yeah. it ends when it ends it, it lasts like, it lasts long enough to kind of keep you on the edge of your seat but not long enough to kind of overstay its welcome and i think it strikes that balance pretty well especially on like a reread or whatever like you know, th that's that's something I like about uh, off the top of my head, like uh, kind of the Ors Junior fight with, uh, or I guess Ors fight from uh, from One Piece, where you literally have all the straw hats like fighting against this guy, and like it takes so much effort just to like take this guy down. I feel like this fight kind of has like that sort of aspect to it. Like th there were, there were points where I was like, oh man, they're getting close. Oh man, are they gonna f are they gonna like finish the fight? Oh man, like. It kept me on the edge of my seat enough to, like, keep me engaged, but it wasn't, like, annoyingly drawn out, and I do appreciate that. Yeah, it's a theme effort, and it's so great. Like, the moment towards the end where, like, just trust pinning Muzan down to just, like, pin him until the sun comes up. And he's, like, you know, Tanjiro has his sword in his chest, and he's, like, pinned him to the wall. And, like, Muzan is, like, trying to, uh, of course, attack him. And then, like, we have Mitsuri, like, just grab his arms and just, like, pull him off. And then we have, like, Sanami pinned down one of his arms, and then we have, like, he tries to open his mouth to, like, eat Tanjiro's oh, head, man. and, like, Obana, like, cramps himself in there <laughs> to stop him. And then, like, Tanjiro, he only has one arm at this point, so Gyo, like, comes in to support him, and they hold the sword together as it turns around Red and like burn Muzan and then yeah just such a great move like they, they succeed they bite out of time till the sun comes out and then like Muzan turns into his baby thing but like <laughs> even then like all the 
Demon Slayers, like not even just Ashura, like the incidental, like rank and files, they all pull in their effort to oh, like okay. stop him and like put cars and buses in his way and like overnight <laughs> like so tries good. to pit him and chain him down and like yeah, it just everyone or go me right, like everyone like has a contribution, like everything like that everyone does matters in that. Fight. Yeah, it's just so satisfying. I love that Demon Slayer isn't the kind of series that like. You know, like like uh, just off the top of my head, if if this were like One Piece, you know, it would pretty much be up to Luffy to take down the bad guy. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I I appreciate a series where like you know in a fight, it's not just kind of up to the main character while like the side characters just kind of watch the important thing happen. Like like you said, every everybody gets a chance to shine and everybody gets to contribute, and I really like that. I still love that Muzan goes from being a boomer to a zoomer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and then, again, the visual is also so great because he resembles, like, kind of that, how he looked as an infant and as, like, a vulnerable infant, like, who people that were born stillborn was almost buried alive before they heard his cries. Like, it, the fact that he, at the end of his life, at the moment where his death is approaching, that he returns to his most vulnerable state is just, again, just so poignant. Like, such great ideas that it paid off. It is good, yeah. One thing I do want to ask, though, is how do you all feel about essentially... Like, everybody does have a role in the Muzan fight, and I'm not going to take away from that. But essentially, he's, like, poisoned the whole time. I think that's good, though. No, I think that also pay, plays into, like, the contributions of everyone leading up to that point. Like, that fact that time Mayo was able to develop a drug that is, like, poisoning, weakening Muzan. Like, it, again, I like that it isn't that they have to be stronger than Muzan. They just have to buy time to weaken him and wear him down. Yeah. Like, that's so great. And again, like, it, again, it pays off to the idea of, like, uh, entrusting other people with your will and, like, the actions you do matter. Yorichi sparing Tamiyo and, like, putting trust in her to find a way to help them destroy Muzan. Like, it pays off in this, like, Tamiyo is able to do it. And the way she's able to do it, like, a drug that causes Muzan to age, the thing that he has been trying to avoid for all this time, like literally kill him by aging him to a point closer to death and destroying his cells, like that is just so great. I loved that, yeah. Yeah. I love the fact that like we even saw precedent for this already with like the delayed poison with Shinobu. So it's just like, oh yeah. damn, this is great. Like oh, we just saw this, but it, it happened again, but it wasn't like uh it didn't feel very cheap. It didn't feel cheapened. Yeah. 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 I love when like Muzan literally goes inside himself to figure like what's wrong and has to ask like inner Tamayo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Tamayo's at this point is just like no longer coin collected. She's just like no. She's just outright spiteful yeah. and vindictive. It's so great, like that. Tamayo is ultimately able to get her revenge on Muzan. Like I just love the the moments where he's taunting and toying with Like the thing that you hate the most, the moment of your death is just so close. It's just yeah, it's very sad. You can tell she actually did spend time with Shinobu. Yeah, I know. They have very similar energies. I think that's why they worked well together oh, yeah, in developing sure. those tracks. If it weren't for Inosuke, Tamiya would be the best character in Demon Slayer. <laughs> uh, which we ha we have not mentioned Inosuke at all, and I think we need to fix that. Because he, for, for me, he's my favorite character. I mean, like, yeah, truly he, yeah, truly he's the bender of the series, so... <laughs> you, you, you said that on the Demon Slayer podcast, and I, I couldn't agree more. Fight my shiny metal blade. Yeah. 
Oh, uh, his other catchphrase fits in Whiskey so well. Let's go already! Holy <laughs> 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 fuck. Fucking cut up some demons! Oh, fuck. I mean, I don't know what to say about him without, like, gushing about him for, like, another hour, but I do legitimately think he probably had, like, some of my favorite emotional moments, like when, you know... Uh, the, the big spoiler happens at the end of Mugen Train and, you know, uh, Tanjiro is defeated and powerless and which is another thing I really like about, you know, shonen manga in particular is I, I love it when we get to that point where like the main character realizes like, oh, I'm, I'm not shit. Like I need to like, like I'm powerless and we, like I, I like it when they lose and they kind of realize like, oh, like I still have like a lot to go and like uh, becoming strong and with my training and whatnot. And I, I, I like that moment where Inosuke kind of, like, snaps uh, snaps him out of his funk. I think that legitimately was the point where, like, I think I, like, cried the most. And I'm looking forward to having that destroy me when we actually, like, get to watch the Mook and Train movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, when I reread that moment, that, that hurt me so much. I mean, we I know I said it earlier that Tanjiro's kind of static, and in, in a good way. Yeah. But, He's like, like I like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. He influences everybody around him. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And they become better people through him. But I like if we want to look for somebody, if you're like, oh well that I mean, I want character development. Inosuke's right there. Oh god. <laughs> like yeah. he goes from this wild child to being able to have that kind of camaraderie and say, you know, it's not like I mean, we're gonna go if we're gonna go back to one piece, it's like that uh like um e- uh Enius Lobby where like Usopp's like it's not like you're dead. This isn't hell. Oh. <laughs> you can still get back up. And that was one of the most raw moments from, like, Usopp, a character that, like, most of the time up until now has just been pretty static, too. But the fact that, I mean, yeah, if it had been anybody else, you know, like, telling Tanjiro not to give up, it would have been like, okay, yeah, that's pretty coarse. But it's it's Inosuke telling him, you know, this isn't where it ends. We got to keep going. Right. But also Inosuke, like, as a character who started out, like, again, pretty self-absorbed in, like, his own wanting to just prove his own strength and that he is strong by, like, cutting up demons. And that's the way we see him join to Demon Slayer Corps was the opportunity to, like, show off how strong and how good he is. And then ultimately, you know, he forms these connections with other people and he cares about them. He's, and he wants to start to you know, do right by them. And that's what makes the the speech so great is that he's saying, you know, it's not a matter of like, will we, we are going to do it. We're going to like carry on his will. Like we're not going to stop. And like, I like that. Like he is like genuinely affected by Rengoku and like, he wants to like live up to that expectation that he's placed on him. And that's a great message from Tanjiro who at that moment is like, can I ever possibly someone as great as Rengoku? Like not just in terms of strength, but like as a person and like, you know, so he's saying like, we will, because that's what he believes that we can do. Like he put his fate in us. So we will do that. And like his bonds really culminated in like the final arc too, where like he's helping out Canal against Doma. But also, like, in the final fight against Muzan, like, he's crying for everyone that's falling. He's like, yeah, look at what you've done, Muzan. Bring them back. Yeah, it's so great. Like, he's the great moment where it's like, everyone has lost lives and arms and legs. Like, just stop. Like, yeah, that's just so great. And also in that fight with Doma, what's great is... and. And it was like that he had connections, relationships, someone who cared for him, like from the beginning with his mother. Like Inosuke initially, originally, like he just thought, you know, I've always just 
been alone. I've always just proved my own strength alone. Like he's not really thinking about like other people have cared for him. And then he realized, no, like he had a mother. He had someone who loved and cared for him and who risked their life to protect his. And that's such a great moment of clarity realization for him too there. That backstory finally happening to was crazy because like they ended that all the way back in like Natsuguma Mountain. Mm-hmm. Oh man! So it's like when yeah, I when I first saw that, I was like, oh my god, I remember this vaguely. And then in Nosuke, finally, like by the end of the series, like having enough care, casual other people to finally also remember to call people by their right name, like calling Tanjiro by his correct name finally, like towards the end of the series, like as he's becoming even, he's like thinking about he can't cut down his friend. Like it's such a great moment. I mean, that's the biggest character development right there. I mean, <laughs> he learned names. He learned... That's our boy. I was a puddle on the floor when we got to that moment where you know his case like i can't cut him down i had to take a break i was <laughs> sobbing <laughs> uh, also on a more like comedy relief uh instance baby inosuke yeah. in the extra chapter yes yeah it's cute oh baby inosuke <laughs> he's a buff baby who danced like a man <laughs> no <laughs> you can't um, i I, I know we're uh, probably getting kind of long here, but um, I I feel, I feel like I want to talk a little bit about Zenitsu because I have to be honest, like out of out of all my criticisms of the series overall, like I really feel like Zenitsu for me is really weird, right? Because I I when I when I got to the anime and uh, it probably doesn't help that I actually like have to hear him talk or whatever and scream or whatever, but like. I really did not like him at first, and and even when we got to Natagumo, well, I think that th- that moment again was the thing that like got me back into the anime, and I really liked a lot of his character stuff. It, I just, I think my thing with him was that I just didn't really think his shtick was very funny for the longest time. I mean, he's just a simp. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, let's face it, he's a simp. But um, I I do think I will give him this. I I do think he gets a little better. As the story goes on, like, I'm not as annoyed with him. And honestly, I was kind of disappointed when, unfortunately, Gotoke pretty much had to, like, speed run through his story with um, Kaigaku. I think that's the thing, looking back on it, that I would have liked more exp- like more time spent with that in particular. Because that, that feels like it should be a bigger moment for Zenitsu, but I feel like we don't get to spend enough time with that. So I... I honestly didn't really care as much as I feel like I should have, and that to, to me that's a bummer. UFO table. You could save it him. It works. It could be better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what's great about that is this is a fight that Sinitsu approaches in that kind of fight, like completely awake and completely serious, which is a, such a huge change. That is good. Yeah, from what we've seen previously, where Sinitsu had to be in like kind of that semi-conscious asleep state in order to fight. Where he has some awareness, but not completely. The fact that he initiates it is the big one. Yeah, he initiates, not only that, he like goes after it directly. Like instead of running away from a fight, he susses out where Kayaku is to engage the fight. Because he has that thing to sell. It is a great character moment for Zenitsu. And then after that, like he does participate like in the final battle, like without complaining fearlessly and completely full of himself. And his senses, so it's it's great. Like I think, I think the what turns people off from Zenitsu is that yeah, he is like very screeny, and he also is very invasive of women in particular, which is not super great. Yeah, I'm not a fan and, of that. Uh, yeah, it. I think that all like kind of smooths out though by the time we get to 
Mugen Train, a really like a great moment of his it comes in Entertainment District where he like stands up to Daki oh, when she's like attacking yeah. that girl and so that was like, good. and he recognizes Daki's a demon at that point, but like he like stands up for someone who's being hurt and like for what is right. So that's a great moment from him and he's really great in that arc and from there on forward, I think. Yeah. And I, I think he has a very solid and very good character arc. But yeah, I, I mean, again, like we just talked about before, we do just wish like that Kaigoku stuff got a little more breathing room to like just kind of be more fully fleshed out. Yeah, especially after they had the audacity to cast Hosea as him with like such a small role. Oh yeah, that's that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> that should have he should have been a Kaza. Whatever, <laughs> it's okay. Isn't um doesn't Akira Ishida play a Kaza? Yeah, but I wanted him to be Doma. Actually, yeah, I, I could see that. I can hear that now. That would have been really good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird, because we, we, we had, like, a Koyasu as, like, a minor demon at the beginning, too. And then, we, so we've got the Joy... Oh, we've yeah. We've got the Joy... <laughs> that one's actually funny, though. we got the Joy Boys in the series, so I know Colton enjoyed that part. Like, <laughs> Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, oh, uh, yeah, Mickey is um, Tanjiro's dad, so we have Sakamoto there, too. And and we have um, Sugita as, as a Gyome. Gyome. yeah. So yeah, all the so all the uh, all the Joy Boys are in. Say you bros. I mean, and there's 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 almost there's almost a non-zero chance that like Daki isn't going to be Kugimiya. Like I I can't. <laughs> oh shit, you're right. Hmm. I would not be That's surprised. Mm, that would be interesting. Um, Entertainment District arc, really good. I really enjoy reading that arc in particular. That's V-Lord's favorite arc. Yeah, I think that's the my favorite arc. I think that's the high point. I think it, like, it all comes together very well. It's like a great payoff to a lot of what Mugen Train was building up towards, where like they do succeed. Like The moment where Tanjiro and Inosuke Sinitsu, they cut off... Daki and Gyotaro's heads off at the same time in like these two full page spreads, super, super satisfying. Thematically, it does great stuff drawing parallel between the relationship between Tanjo and Nezuko and Gyotaro and Daki. I wish that Nezuko was involved throughout more of the fight, but like the stuff that she gets in there is still pretty good. Yeah. And of course, at the end, like the fact that Tanjiro and her are watching Gyotaro and Daki as they like pass away, like again, it still drives the point home. And Gyotaro and Daki are very interesting, compelling antagonists. And the fight itself is super good. Uzui is super uh, entertaining, and he has also a great story to him. Like, yeah, it's, it just is a great combination of elements and themes and ideas that get paid off and supported. So you get it very beautifully. I, I really think it's like my favorite part of it as a story. Yeah, totally agree. I can't wait for this next season. It's going to be so good. I might I, I might actually watch that week to week. Excellent. Ooh, then you could be on the podcast. You could. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to it. All right. One thing I did like about the entertainment district art is that suddenly, like, Inosuke becomes the king of recon. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> I, like, I found that, like, strikingly, I, I almost found that out, out of character. But then I really thought about, like, yeah, but he's never really had a chance to have that part of himself shine. Because, like, when, when he was alone and getting all the information and everything like that, I was just like, wow, this guy's actually pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, he's mellowed out and also knows to focus on priorities at that point, too. My favorite part of the arc is when he just, like, jumps into the jumps into the ceiling and calls for the mice to bring his sword. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's I love so those good. mice. His, like, buff mice. Buff mice. I really hope they animate them with those potato face. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh man 
But uh, I guess, um, I mean, th- there's so much we could talk about, obviously, with this series. But is there anything we want to touch on real quick at all before we maybe get on the Twitter questions soon? Oh, there was one thing I noticed on my reread. Uh, I don't know if it's at all, like, important or just, like, any kind of... It's just, like, a detail I noticed. Uh, do you guys ever realize, like, Nezuko's transformation where she got that horn? Mm-hmm. Um, I always wondered if, like, that had some kind of significance in any in any capacity. But, like... When Kokushibo, like, uh, overcomes his limits as, like, a demon and, like, regenerates his head, he also starts growing, like, those, like, long horns. Um, mm-hmm. I wondered if, if that had to do anything with, like, the fact that, like, it's pointed out, like, that literally happens, like, after Kokushibo says, like, oh, the only thing that can kill me now is the sun. And, like, Nezuko has been able to do that since, like, Entertainment District. Like, that's probably had something to do with, like, her demon biology or whatever. Hmm. So yeah. I assume the horn was because like she got the mark, because the mark started appearing on her body. Yeah, it's interesting. This is stuff that the story could have made more explicit, but I think those are interesting connections. I think like, I wouldn't be surprised if there is like a yeah a connection between those two things that they are related. Yeah, because Kokushibo does have marks too, but like that yeah that was before his like demon biology changed. Right, those were yeah. what he inherited, like as a demon slayer. Uh, maybe that was like a like a scrapped uh, plot point or something. I didn't pick up on that, but it is interesting. I guess my last thing to talk about, I guess, just about rereading the series, like start to finish, like not. I mean, ultimately, I think that this is just such a absurdly written series yeah. and very cohesive and thoughtful, and just how it's constructed and written. So I, I really appreciate rereading it start to finish. And I do think that I can confidently consider it among my favorite manga now, I would say. Because, like, I am super impressed and super touched by the themes. And the fact that I can, without any notes, just recite all the characters and the story events and stuff, that is the mark of, like, okay, this series has made an impact on me. I can I can very much confidently call it one of my favorite manga. But my only really other thought reading through it uh, start to finish is that I noticed that this translation there's some sloppy parts to it there are times where characters names are misspelled there are times where there are some misattributions there are some grammatical errors uh so it's kind of odd like just noticing all of that yeah yeah i noticed one an awkward part where yushiro was like mentioned and then like they used the wrong pronoun and then like two yeah. pages later uh in the extra it was fixed but you she her pronouns like Akaza is referred to as as a Zaka at one point. Huh. There's a mo- moment where you know when Zenitsu is like running to find out Kayaku, like there's a moment where he's saying like Muzan may be close, but that doesn't really make sense in the context. So I have to wonder if like really what he was saying originally Japanese is maybe of a more way like he may be close. It was. Yeah, so that was like a mis mistaken assumption made up our translation. Yeah. I feel like this is definitely part of the, the the whole process of like trying to speed up the releases. Probably not enough time to check that stuff. Yeah, yeah. and I, I I think people give John Wary way too much flack for that because I think John Wary, as a translator and having read multiple of the series, he does a good job. Yeah. That being said, I think like yeah, I think jumping into the series like out of context and the final arc for the Simulpub really hindered a lot yeah. of things and the quality issues also in the early volumes like aren't aren't very good. Um, and I know like partway through they brought on Ray to I think be the editor for it. Mm-hmm. So I think at that point once they got involved, it got a lot better. Yeah, but there are like spotty issues where like there yeah. are some things that are like you know inconsistencies or incorrect 
stuff that yeah. I, I would hope that would be revised in future printings. Also, but... the lettering could be. Yeah, I mean, better. there are also some things that we just talked about that are lettering mistakes. Yeah. Like the Zaka, like, I think that's just, that probably was a lettering mistake. Like, there are, there are some mistakes. Yeah, I, 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 think, uh, I think it was Aiden who brought it up, but like, there, there are definitely a lot of areas of improvement on the lettering front mm-hmm. in here uh, that could have been made, which is a shame, especially for a series that's, I think, become as important as Demon Slayer for not yeah. having a better release. I guess when, when you say lettering, I'm, I'm assuming we're also lumping in, like, the, the like the sound effects, re-lettering and stuff yeah. like that, too? Okay. Yes. Uh, especially the sound effects. Yeah, the sound effects were weird, like, and I, obviously, I, I haven't ever really, like, seen Demon Slayer, like, in Japanese or whatever, so I don't know what the original lettering is like, but, like... They're big. <laughs> I, I, I imagine, like, the, the sound effects in particular, to me, felt, like... I don't, I don't, I don't know how to like describe it. Like they, they did invasive. A little, like it, it felt like you could tell, like they felt added in. Like I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, they, yeah, they don't feel like they really fit sometimes. They don't feel super a part of the style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, yeah. They don't feel reflective of Gochoge's art. Mm-hmm. And I've seen similar do. complaints uh, on John Hunt's work on JoJo as well. Um, like, on how they handle lettering and redraws, though they don't do sound effects for that, of course. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I, it might be, it's partially a preferential thing, but also I just feel it, it could have been better. No, I, I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I have a similar issue in, in the Japanese version. I feel like some of the SFX are way too big for the page, uh, and they kind of, like, take away or, like, cover some of the actual art. I don't know. I feel, I feel like it's an issue of like trying to adapt something that uh, in the original is already kind of messy. Yeah, yeah, probably. Like, it's not always perfect in uh, the Japanese either, but I, it didn't bother me as much for whatever reason. I think it fit a lot better. Um, so maybe this should have been a series where, like JoJo, like, they didn't change the sound effects and just, like, put in footnotes, but it is what it is. Like, it doesn't detract enough from the volume release for me to be like, oh, the volume release has got off or anything. It's still good for what it is. I, I was going to say, like, as, as much as I really appreciate Viz's work on a lot of their stuff nowadays, like, I feel like this and th- this series in particular doesn't really compare to a lot of, like, you know, like, like a lot of the early stuff they used to do. Well, I mean, yeah, it doesn't compare to, to that, uh, like, the really early stuff, but it's like, it's still below usual quality standards. Yeah. No, for sure. Like, there are more imperfections then I feel I would think is permissible in like a official published book and, and published series. No, yeah, no, I I agree. I, I think what we're getting at is it could be better, but it also could be worse. Yeah, it's not a Tokyo pop release. <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really hard to live up to their quality. Um, but yes. Yeah, I mean, I guess overall, like, I'm really glad I read this series, and I'm. I mean, again, like I mentioned earlier, like, I, I was afraid because of, like, how popular it got. I was going to be too stuck on, like, oh, well, is this is this actually any good? Like, am I actually going to like it? Is being that popular? <laughs> I, I, was, I was afraid I was going to be, like, stuck in that mindset for a lot of the time. But it it really sucked me in. And, you know, uh, for, for as much as I think the artwork in particular, I do think, personally, it is improved upon in the anime with, like, especially with, like, the fight choreography – I still, I still feel like Gotoke as an artist, uh, for me, I think is they're a good enough artist to where like I'm definitely looking forward to their next work, and I do think their art, especially like, gets better 
uh, as it goes on, especially with like uh, uh, the Kokushiba fight. There were so many good like two page spreads in that fight. Yeah, I'm so excited to see Kokushiba's like moon breeding style of like pressing and slashes anime. It's gonna God, look super that'll be amazing. insane. Like I think Gotoka is like an amazing action artist and only improves as they go along. Like yeah. I think they really hit their stride in the entertainment district on forward where the fights just all are super intense and look super cool and excellent. So yeah, I mean I think this is a great action manga. But uh like as we said before, the the action as supports the the themes of the story and the characters and the ultimate messages and i think those all come together and are all weaving in really beautifully and very smoothly and it really all comes together in an excellent way and it just uh, it definitely has like very profound emotional moments and uh, messages it expresses uh, so it definitely hits with me and i think that yeah this i would consider it now one of my favorite series i definitely mm. am confident of that like uh, it is like a super impressive work and i think that it is like astonishingly popular but i think that it's deservingly so yeah yeah i, I agree since colton brought it up i do wonder how gotuke's skills that they've developed in demon slayer are going to transfer to what they've hinted is a comedy sci-fi series yeah it's gonna be exciting to see like yeah what are they i think that on arti- the sci-fi elements artistically is going to be, you know, honestly, boat elements. Like, we know how good Gotege is in Kadi, yeah. like, with this series, and then we know that they are incredibly capable artists, like, so I'm I'm definitely curious, like, we're going to move from this, uh, like, period piece set in uh, Japan like, a hundred years ago to, like, a more futuristic sci-fi setting, and I'm, I'm super excited to see, like, the art that they'll draw for that. They're going from the One Piece killer to the Gintama killer. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I was just going to say. the One Piece killer, they're already the Gintama killer. Yeah, they're there. I, I for mean, one am ready for moves on Lost in Space. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, it's insane to think about this. Yes. Yeah, I that's guess a, that's a, that was the joke. <laughs> Muzan just stopped it's thinking after a while. It's insane to think about this, uh, <laughs> though, because, like, Demon Slayer is about to outsell Kochi Kame. What? Yeah. That's fucked up. It means that right now is like ranked number nine of highest selling manga of all time. It's suppressed. And it surpasses Coach Kami. It'll be like number eight. It's just going to keep climbing. Oh, man. Yeah. It's like when you're out selling like one of the longest manga of all time. A manga that has only been around five years is outselling a manga that's been around for four decades and has yeah. 200 volumes. Like, and that's a lot of those insane. sales are only from the last two years. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah, crazy. And this franchise is not over yet like sales have seemingly like started to decline a little bit like i think we have reached like the peak i mean who knows there might be another like resurgence whenever the new season comes out or more films are made or whatever so we'll see oh but, i'm yeah. certain there will be and if uh it, it needs me they'll probably do like a Demon Slayer Perfect Edition or something yo they're definitely gonna be re-releases yes oh for yeah. sure yeah yeah um. And I will buy it every <laughs> single volume. Yeah, I mean, we already have like a box set from this coming, but they're going to make omnibuses at some point. Yeah, too. yeah, it's it's very telling that they're doing box sets when like uh we still have like a few volumes left to be released. And we have two. Yeah, so. the box set's going to come like shortly after the last volume comes out. I think so. Yeah, because the final volume will be out in August. August. Yeah, yep, August. 
But uh, yeah. So in conclusion, is is Demon Slayer as good as it as people say it is? Yes, it is. The answer is yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I can definitely say that firsthand. I owe a lot of what I do now to Demon Slayer. I wouldn't be writing about manga if it weren't for Demon Slayer. I would probably be podcasting if it weren't for Demon Slayer. So yeah, I owe uh, Demon Slayer a lot. Thank you, Gotagay, for uh, <laughs> make me have no free time. <laughs> Gotagay's demon slayed your free time. You get it straight. Apparently. <laughs> and we'll probably be talking about their series for the rest of our lives. <laughs> or until they created other series. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I guess with our discussion out of the way here, um, Lum, I think we should answer our Twitter questions before we go. Sure thing. So our first question comes from our good friend Joy Weiser, who asked a pretty basic question, but a good one. Our favorite Hashira. Uzui. Okay. Um, I mean, Uzui Shinobu. Uzui is a great choice, but yeah, I, I would, I think Shinobu, I just, I love her character Shinobu design, but butterfly Hayori. I just love her personality and a lot of the things that inform her character. Like, again, that character detail I mentioned, how she is acting more like Kane after Kane passes away, like, kind of in honor and memory of her sister. Like, I like a lot about Shinobu. Like, she's such an interesting character mm-hmm. and she has a great design. But yes, Uzi was, would definitely be a runner-up as second. And I also really like Mitsuri. Like, she's just a fun character. Like, she's kind of really dense and naive sometimes but she, she's just so charming in that way too yeah i think shinobu's up there for me it's either, i think it's a tie between her and giyu uh but also like i'm because of the final arc i'm also really high on uh uh shit uh shinazugawa i forgot his first name sanami sanami yeah sanami just because like i'm i i really love the fact that uh both him and Giyu are like the survivors and they have like yeah they have like their sense of like survivor's guild and the fact that they they got to wrestle with that kind of stuff but um they still they still have like their attachment to uh the people that they really care about and stuff i thought uh sonomi was handled really well especially in the final arc Oh, absolutely. Those yeah. are great choices as the surviving hashira because they are characters who like didn't think much of their own lives and like were wanting to like kind of sacrifice their lives because yeah they have that survivor skill they didn't think that they deserve to live like in contrast to other people but like yeah the fact that they do live on and now that they can carry like on the feelings of the people who did like sacrifice their lives so that they could live on and they just have to make peace with that and like live their lives happily in honor of them like i think that's a great point and very poignant like yeah i, I feel in part it's tragic that open i did die because you know in his backstory like he'd never really got a big chance to live as a child and then he also felt kind of ceremony like he he his existence is poisoned and he thought that the only way he could make like meaning of his life was like to become a demon slayer and by sacrificing himself he would root out that poison so i part of me feels like he shouldn't have died but i think that it is kind of sweet and touching that he and mystery like died kind of together in their arms and like making a promise to like if they were born they'd be a couple again we do see that happens in the future yeah this is not a hashira but you know which death was tragic who's genya 
Yeah, oh, they man. did have super glue. <laughs> all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Kenya together again. <laughs> <laughs> My friend actually dropped Demon Slayer because Genya died. I feel bad. Oh, <laughs> Genya was so cool though. He had a oh, gun. Character. Yeah, he had a gun. Demon gun. Oh, that's a great He's the guy who for... brings a gun to a sword. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. Like I, I just love that panel where like Genya shows up, like when they're being attacked by Hantengu and he just tremos out his gun. That, that's the end of a chapter. It's uh. just so funny. And in the Kokushima fight, he has to literally eat his sword. <laughs> yeah, he does. Huh. Like, that was pretty uh. based. Yeah. Um, in terms of my favorite Hashira, it might be an easy choice, but like, I have to go with Rengoku. I have a type. I like the hot-blooded characters, so he was he was my favorite. But I will say, um, I don't know, surprisingly enough, I, I don't know if it's because I just like his design so much, and it's because of like, you know, him being voiced by Kenichi Suzumura. Um, I do like Obanai a lot. The the very little that we got with him, like at the, at the end of the final arc, I I still I still enjoy what we got. So yeah, he has a great design and a great character. Like yeah, I just that's why I just wish there was like more of him. I like him because he's like a two thousands edgy OC. You would see on <laughs> uh, what's it called? What's that website called? Uh, uh, DeviantArt. Not DeviantArt. The other one, Gaia? Uh, something fire. Uh, oh damn. I know what you're talking about. Like, oh God, I don't know. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, Angel Fire. Angel Fire. Yeah. Yes, mm. that's what exactly what uh, I'm talking about. Obanai is the Hanagumi of Demon no. Slayer. No, he looks <laughs> really cool, but he doesn't <laughs> do anything. What? No way. What are you talking about? Hanagumi he is. No, okay, they don't do enough. Yes. Okay, that's that's yeah. They're characters that you think they sh- they should have done more with. And the author clearly cared. Yeah, because, yeah, the author does what yeah, he does yeah. I mean, Colton's just biased because he chose the two characters voiced by Kamui and Okita, and that's okay. <laughs> but he didn't choose the character voiced by Kikita. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Why didn't you? Kiyome's good. <laughs> I, I just I just like the other two more. Okay, I see. You sh- I, sh- I see. You ship you ship Okita and, and Kamui. It's fine. <laughs> no, I yeah. no, I, I sh- no, I, I ship Obanai and Kanroji because they're a great couple, and I really wish we got more of uh, more of them together. The two Kagura adjacent characters you like, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> the canon OTP. Okay, man. What if Zenitsu was voiced by Shimpachi? God, <laughs> I, that'd be perfect. You know, I don't know. If, maybe I'm biased, but maybe I would have liked more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even doubt that. The biggest question in Demon Slayer is how did Zenitsu get laid? <laughs> uh, I, I guess like he and Isko did just like generally form a good relationship afterward. You know, that is uh, maybe opportunity to be explored in a Demon Slayer the last style movie, I guess. <laughs> oh, maybe. Oh, I, would, no. I, I would watch the shit out of that. Act. Demon Slayer the final. Yeah. How does Isko lowered her standards? <laughs> <laughs> I can't. <laughs> oh man, I don't know if you're wrong there. Holy shit! Because, 
Maybe so. She could have done way better. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> um, we, we should probably get to our Rengoku other. Goku is great. Well, I just want on one note about. Oh Rengoku. yeah, sure, sure. Like he's such a great character because even though like this is something sometimes I see as a criticism that Ron Goku isn't in the story that much, but I just like and love that the legacy he leaves behind. Like even if it was just for a short time, it resonates, it reverberates like for so many characters throughout the rest of the story. Yeah, he still the has a presence. He tells Tanjiro, "Keep your heart." burning that's something tantra says to himself throughout that final fight with muzan like he left so much of an impact like it just goes again to the overall team that yeah the actions that everyone's you alive, impact. The impact that you made on other people like it all matters it's all carried yeah. on it all carries forward into the future i think that's why i like him so much is because he still has a presence throughout the story and like he mm. he, st- he still gives tanjiro and the others like so much drive to do what they do it's 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 palpable like it's it's great he's a foil to stain which i think about sometimes because <laughs> like stain has the same function in um, my hero academia sort of so like <laughs> yeah i can see that Dane also had an impact on the world of mha in which he like encouraged and inspired a lot of people to basically become anti-hero he inspired the league of villains yeah but yeah i our next question, our last question as well, is from, I believe in KNY Supremacy, from at Rengoku S-C-M-S-L-T-T. And their question is, would you choose being a demon or a demon slayer? And, um, I mean, I'd rather be neither, because neither have, like, a great <laughs> chance of survival Ooh. or living. Oh, uh, like, That's a good if answer. the caveat would be, like... I'm not a, a demon created by Muzan, but by Tamayo, maybe? But even then, I don't know if I'd want to give up being able to go out in sunlight, you know? I, I, like, I, I think rather being eaters. Yeah, you kind of get the... I'm, I'm, in, in, like, this is the part where I'd be like, oh, you get the shit out of the stick with this one, but in this case, the, sh- the stick has both shitty ends, you know? Yeah, I mean, the I think... You definitely don't want to be a demon under Muzan. So, nah, like, Demon no. Slayer, like, you have to have the choice between that or Demon Slayer. You should go with Demon Slayer. Because your changes of survival might not be great, but at least you still, like, have that chance of surviving a chance of freedom. Your humanity is intact. Like, if a de- the demons controlled by Muzan, like, they basically, like, are enslaved by Muzan. Like, he can kill them at any time. He knows what they're thinking. He knows where they're at every, all the time. Like, he's always in their thoughts. Like, it's kind of a hellish existence. Like, only, like, if you have, like, truly, like, given up on humanity and, like, want to truly pursue, like, selfishly, like, your own ends through becoming a demon, like, would you make that choice? Because otherwise you're giving up way too much. Yeah. I mean, if uh, this is an option, I'd be a Kakushi. Because <laughs> oh, then I could just stay safe in Butterfly Inn. Yeah, not a ton of the Kakushi, like, are killed off. So, you know, that is probably, like, the safest position among the Demon Slayer Corps. Yeah, you still have to, like, take care of, like, dead bodies. Oh, uh, yeah, boy. So it's yeah. not, a, like, a, a great job if you're, like, uncomfortable with that and, like, seeing dead bodies. But, like, it is probably the safest a position to be in. As a I hope they get paid well. Yeah, I mean, uh, we'll, I wonder. Yeah. 
Honestly, I'm, I'm going to go with V-Lord on this one. I think I'd rather be a Kakushi. Like, and if I were in the world of Demon Slayer, I could definitely see myself being the guy who's just kind of like watching all the strong people be strong and be like, what is what is wrong with some of these people? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'd be the first guy killed in the final slot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, what, what about you guys? Uh, huh. Wow, I, I can't believe, I, I know that we're kind of going aside from the question, but yeah, I'd probably be a Kakushi, because I like looking at swords, but I don't want to <laughs> use one. <laughs> like, and, and, I mean, I guess I could do the demon life, because I don't go outside much, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I also don't want to kill people, and I also don't want Muzan looking at what I look at, so that's yeah. like, and he seems like a pretty terrible boss. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm gonna. No. Definitely does not believe in no, time. I, I, I just don't think that that would be a good ma- master. I mean, he seems like a person that would micromanage people. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. Now I'm just imagining Muzan working at retail. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> I've had bosses similar to Muzan. Of course, they can't. Oh, God. So. <laughs> So yeah, I I I, I would not really want to do a like work for Muzan at all in any capacity. So yeah, I, if I had to, if like if Kakushi were completely off the table, then yeah, I would go with the like uh, being one of the demon slayers instead. I mean, besides, it means I get to hang out with Tanjiro and Inosuke. So I mean, if we could modify our bodies like Tameo and Yushiro, it wouldn't be that bad. Because then yeah, I. Yeah, so long as we're not demons with our moves on, like, it's not... If yeah, if there's that distinction, then that's not the worst thing to be. But it's still not ideal, necessarily, yeah. to need blood to ingest or drink. Or also, again, not being able to go out v- Very much against the demon dictatorship on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I would probably have a hard time like keeping up with the training to be a demon slayer, but yeah, same. I would probably still choose that over being a a demon, just because like I don't know. <laughs> I also don't go out that much, but like not being able to be in the sun kind of sucks. Yeah, sun feels good. Yeah, need me some vitamin D. Yeah, mm, that good old vitamin D. Yeah, and I feel like um, it would be cool if I could like actually like. If I actually had like a talent in that kind of like training or whatever, uh, all of the breathing styles are really cool. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, but I think that's about it for questions. Yeah, I think that does it for questions. Not a ton this time. Do I put it out the usual places? But I think a lot of people will enjoy and are looking forward to this podcast all the same. Yeah, yeah. I'm honestly, I I kind of thought we were gonna get enough questions to do like our own Q and A episode. I could have easily seen that happening, but I'm I'm also fine with this. I'm fine with not doing an extra podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I I think this was a good podcast. I mean, like I said, I'm sure we could have talked about Demon Slayer for even like another two hours, but I I, I think we covered a lot of bases. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground touching upon the Cortines series and the roots of like why it's resonated so broadly and so humongously and just what makes it a special work that has firmly entrenched itself in popular culture. Like again, not just in Japan, but also abroad, like why this series so quickly has become like such a uh, really powerfully uh, resonant work. So I think that, yeah, we covered a lot of great ground 
And we had a really great conversation. And yeah, thank you guys again for coming on the show and talking about it with us. Yeah, thanks for inviting. Yeah, it was great to be back and talk to you guys. Yeah, definitely. And definitely listen to the Demon Slayer podcast for, again, more hours of Demon Slayer conversation. Because, you know, especially with the deep individual chapter deep dives and volume breakdowns, like, there's a lot that you guys discuss and are able to pick apart and really hone in on thematically. And also just in terms of Kotoge's art. And yeah, so definitely give those a look, especially for thoughts on the final arc of Demon Slayer. Pretty much all of that. I mean, look, if, if you don't feel like you got enough Demon Slayer out of this podcast in particular, th- there's a whole other Demon Slayer podcast hosted by these guys, and you should be listening to it. Um, but I guess uh, I guess this is part of the show where you guys get to plug your stuff before you go, and I guess, uh, Sakaki, if you want to start ahead, uh, you can go ahead. Oh, sure. Uh, I am. You can find me at, at Kirobon, K-I-I-R-O-B-O-N, on Twitter. That's my personal Twitter. Nothing much there. Let's go on to the fun stuff. You can also find me on... Um, at WSS Talkback on Twitter, where I talk about all the great things that are in Shonen Sunday that people aren't seeing for some reason. <laughs> well, I know the reason, but yeah, we're, we're working hard to change that. We also have wsstalkback.blogspot.com, which is where reviews of Shonen Sunday manga, Shogakukan manga, and interviews and all of that are there, and we need to update that, but we're working on it. And as I always say, anybody that wants to write about Shogakukan or um, Shonen Sunday or anything of the sort or just wants to talk about it, please let us know. I also write for Toonami Faithful and I as well, well, Colton and I actually have another podcast that is about Dragon Ball, which I figure I'm going to steal this from him. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. Uh, another day, another adventure at, at another DV pod on Twitter. And that's been a lot of fun. We're hoping to get more of that out there. Yeah, uh, episodes of that will be coming up publicly within, like, the next few months, so look out for that. Um, and, yeah, I'll, I mean, I'm also on a bunch of podcasts with, um, V-Lord and Marion, a Shaman King one, and, of course, a Demon Slayer one, but I'll let them talk more about those. <laughs> oh, what about, uh, Saturday Night Shoggy? Uh, I was also gonna let them do that, but that's fine. Okay, cool, cool, cool. You forgot the most important no, one. <laughs> I didn't forget it. I'm just like, if I say everything, what are you guys going to say? <laughs> but fine, fine. Also, that, that, that's fair. That is also, there's Saturday Night Shoggy, which is, uh, I guess it's, I don't want to call it affiliated with Shog- uh, Weekly Shogakukan Edition on Twitter, just because I, I don't want to take that much credit, because obviously Marion and V-Lord do a lot of work on it, too. But it is a good companion piece to that, where we talk, we have a podcast where we talk about Shogakukan stuff. And yeah, check those out. For sure, for sure. Marion, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at microwavy, the E is before the V. I have a card there that's linked, linked in my description with all the other projects I have. Like everyone said, I'm also on Demon Slayer Podcast. That's at D Slayer Podcast on Twitter. And we're also hosting Oversoul, the Shaman King Podcast at Shaman King Pod on Twitter. That was, that's fun. B-Lord is uh, the host of that one. Uh, and I host Saturday Night Shoggy at Sat Night Shoggy on Twitter. We recently put out an episode uh, interviewing the letterer for Call of the Night, the new series in English by Koriyama, who you may recognize him as the author of the Gashi Kashi, uh, which got an anime. Uh, we haven't gotten the manga in English yet. And um, yeah, uh, besides that, uh, I also co-host the Good Friends Anime Club at Good Friends Cast on Twitter. It's where me and a couple other friends get together to have a friendly, inclusive conversation about manga, manga anime games, you name it. And yeah, I'm also on Haikyuu Pod. Uh, from the top, it's good. Haikyuu, well, read it. It's over. Just binge the whole thing. It's worth it. 
And uh, I write also for Toonami Faithful, uh, ToonamiFaithful.com. I wrote an editorial that's being edited right now for... It's actually about Bobobo. So oh, fuck yeah. By the time this episode is out, you'll it should definitely be up on Toonami Faithful. So you can check that out for sure. Oh, man. Sweet. Okay, we're definitely getting that a shout out when it's out. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Oh, Ma- Marion, you got me so excited. I'm definitely going to read that. Good. Um, and what else? I also write for the WSS blog, uh, uh, weekly Shogakukan edition, wsstalkback.blogspot.com. I'm working on a, a piece to get out by the end of April. It's basically going to be like a, what's, what's the word? Not a retrospective, but like a, basically like a catch you up to all of the stuff that has come out this year for Shaggy in English. So look forward to that for sure. The review copy super review. <laughs> My super review. Yes, because I've been so <laughs> backed up by work that I, I barely had time to write this whole year, but I'll make it up for it. <laughs> And uh, yeah, besides that, you can find my personal reviews at my uh, my personal blog at uh, heavensdoorknob.wordpress.com. Yes, that is a Joe joke. All right. Uh, please definitely go follow Marion's stuff as well, uh, as well as VLord, who's up next. Yes, people can find me on Twitter at VLordGTZ. Um, and I also write for all-comic.com, specifically manga and light novel reviews. And I also write for tsunamifaithful.com occasionally. Uh, hopefully I have another article up by the time this is out. Uh, kind of been slacking on that, but uh, it'll be done eventually. You still do press releases? There you go. Yeah, uh, occasionally. But yeah, uh, Marion also kind of mentioned like the bulk of the podcast that I'm involved in. Like, uh, over Soul Shaman King podcast, Saturday Night Shoggy. Uh, which, yeah, definitely listen to the new Saturday Night Shoggy because we had... Someone who has been on this podcast quite a few times, Ace Chrisman. Mm-hmm. Um, Ace Core Chrisman. Oh, yeah. Got, officially got Core added as their middle name. Which is so which is cool. Awesome. I love it. That's yeah. so good, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, it, it was really cool talking to Ace about like everything they did on Call of the Night. Um, and Call of the Night's also just awesome. So mm-hmm. go pick it up. I definitely need to read that. Yeah, and then um, I also have a general anime and manga podcast that I do with a few friends called Dumb Weebs Podcast. And that's on Twitter at Dumb Weebs Pod. We have a few uh, various episodes out. Uh, one on ReZero, one on Ruby, one on Slayers too. So it's, it's a... Ooh. I don't think... Is that a, out? I think the Slayers one is out. Oh man. Maybe. Did I miss it? I gotta listen to that. Either that or sit editing. It'll hopefully be out. It's on the light novels, right? I mean, yeah, light novels, of course. Didn't you guys do one on um, Nichicho as well? Yeah, we did. I'm gonna have to listen to that, bro. Nice. Okay, I need to get on on that. Yeah, so so we go all over the place, but uh, it, it's a fun time. Um, and then obviously Demon Slayer podcast. Um, I feel safe saying this, like since this probably will be out after this. Um, we are gonna be mentioned in the New York Times. Woohoo! Woo! <laughs> yeah, so I was uh, interviewed by the New York Times uh, last week um, about kind of the influences you can see in Demon Slayer and like what people should check out because of that. Um, and yeah, they apparently listen to our podcast. Which is fucking <laughs> terrifying, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's terrifying and cool. Yes, agreed. But yeah, we, we should be mentioned in the New York Times, hopefully, unless something randomly changes. So that'd be really cool, and that's kind of insane to think about that our little podcast has grown so big. We'll catch up to you one day. <laughs> I'm surprised you guys haven't already. I'm right. surprised too. No, I'm just kidding. 
It's fine. It's cool. <laughs> I'm not jealous or anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and one other thing I completely forgot. The Tommy Faithful podcast. Yeah. I'm on that quite a bit. Technically, I'm not a co-host, though I'm on there enough that I like. Yeah. I basically am at this point. You definitely are. Just because I'm always free. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can hear me on that. It's on Twitter, at Tanami Podcast, and we talk about all the different things, Tanami-related and Tanami-related shows. We had a really good discussion recently on Attack on Titan, the final season, mm. and uh, the problematic elements of it, and also the elements that make it interesting. I think it was a very good multifaceted discussion. It got uh, pretty deep and uh, went went to some uh, kind of tough places. So mm. I, I think people will find it interesting. Listen. No, yeah, but uh, please definitely go follow everything that these guys do. Um, you know, if, if we didn't like their stuff and we, you know, we, we wouldn't have them on and we wouldn't be, you know, trying to, you know, constantly promote their stuff. So please go check them out. Um, but yeah, I guess, um, Lum, we're, we're probably pretty good to head into community shoutouts, huh? Mm-hmm. It looks like sun's coming up, dawn's breaking, demons been slamming. It's time to just go out and enjoy ourselves in the sun after... A good many hours of slaying this demon, which has been discussing Demon Slayer. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> once again to Wheelord Sakaki Mirian for coming on to discuss Demon Slayer with us. It's been a long time coming. This series has been so amazing to see how it's grown since the early days of our show. Um, one of our very first jump starts we covered. We covered everyone who's new. It's as old as the show itself, so it's just so special to like just see like how this series became one of the biggest manga series of all time. And discuss why that is so well deserved, because the series is just really that good. It is just, you know, that well written, that poignant. And it is so well deserved that it's just captured the imagination of just so many people worldwide. And why community shoutouts will also dig into why that is or show, you know, the appeal of like the how Demon Slayer can like just capture the imagination of people. Like, we have definitely talked about that I think Demon Slayer is getting a lot of interest from people who normally wouldn't be into anime or don't normally engage in anime, but just, like, really find the series compelling. And one of my favorite kind of first-time reactions walked through uh, videos that I've seen from people getting to Demon Slayer comes from a guy called Bruce Leslie, who was primarily, like, a comic book reviewer. Like, his channel... Like, his videos before he did de- these Demon Slayer watch-through videos, like, he went through the history of a few really interesting comic book characters, like, with Seth Falcon and Winter Soldier is going on. Like, he did a video kind of on the background of the Flag Smashers, and then a video on John Walker Battlestar, and one on Barry you know. So he's really more of a comic book guy. Like, he's a guy who's, you know, been a lifelong comic book 
fan and he's even written comics and so he w- wasn't that into anime necessarily like it's not that he was in first like I, he mentioned that he had watched some shows like Trigun before but like he wasn't like super uh into anime but he went to see the film with his daughter and you know he found it very interesting and got very into it and then he and his daughter started like this walkthrough of the show and those videos really blew up and they were translated by like Japanese channels and subtitled and like they got a lot of enthusiasm and appreciation from Japanese fans and that really has you know blown his channel up so it's just really nice to see that because he I think he's such a great critic like he really has a really great appreciation for art and he's very perceptive his like instincts are always on the mark in terms of things to analyze and watch out for and he has very thoughtful, you know, commentary on the show. And I like the dynamic with his daughter a lot because they have like a great banter. And, you know, he often is just asking her questions about how she felt about something in the show and uses those to kind of create like kind of, uh, some really nice teachable moments and bonding moments. Like it's just so wonderful to just watch like, a parent and his kid like just kind of bond over watching a show together and having a great time talking about it and it's just so wholesome and nice and i really enjoyed watching their reaction video it was the watch through videos of demon slayer and i'm excited to see them go through Jujutsu Kaisen, which both of them are going into you know kind of blind now like yeah i think this is just such a wonderful wholesome uh, review series that he does and I think that yeah like he has really great thoughts like even just walking through this show for the first time like he really picks up on a lot of things and is very like perceptive so I, I really appreciate his commentary so definitely check out his videos like they're really really fun really sweet watches and look forward to seeing him coming more anime series in the future like JJK yeah, that, that that sounds really cool. I'm gonna have to watch those. Um, I kind of wonder if maybe at some point they'll uh, they'll try out My Hero Academia. Yeah, I think that would be a cool idea. Like, I think that they they're doing Jujutsu Kaisen right now, and they're doing Attack on Titan next. But like, they seem to be really enjoying like just watching anime with each other. Like, it's just so sweet because like you know this is just. A nice thing where he and his daughter are like bonding together, like talking and watching and talking about a show. Like he talks about, you know, it's just nice to be able to have something that I can do with my daughter. You know, we can just enjoy spending time together talking about like this thing we're both interested in. Again, it's just so sweet. I'm a real sucker for like videos, and even I've 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 even like listened to a few podcasts like this too, where it's like, you know, where a parent or a parental guardian hangs out with their kid and uh, watches or uh, goes through something or whatever, like, and they get the kid's thoughts on it. Like th- that, that kind of stuff I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for actually. So this, this feels like it's really up my alley. Yeah. The Demon Slayer one, you know, was kind of a interesting role because obviously the daughter had seen the show before, but he did, but yeah, like, you know, now they're kind of both in the same boat of watching Stu JJK for the first time. So that's been pretty interesting. And, you know, I'm going to be curious to see uh, their thoughts on some of the heartbreak and stuff. Uh, they're getting to the gym face up. So I'm going to be curious. But, uh, yeah, I mean, just such wonderful, wholesome and also thoughtful videos. Like, definitely check them out. 
Now, for commentary on the film, like I mentioned Kate's review of Mugen Train on a previous episode, but I also, of course, want to recommend the Did You Have To episode on Mugen Train, where her and Aisha, they talked about the film more in depth and went over, like, a lot of the teams that Kate pinpointed in her review, like, in more greater detail. It's a really great discussion of the film and its themes. And similarly, Kate wrote a fantastic piece just honing in specifically on how Demon Slayer as a story, and the movie in particular, like, explores grief and explores, you know, grappling with grief and confronting it, accepting it, overcoming it, and moving on and gaining the strength to be able to move forward it's such a wonderfully written piece and it, i think it really hits on a very poignant point about that is such a meaningful message in especially the past year of the pandemic where there's been a lot of hardship and a lot of trauma and a lot of grief and i do think that one of the reasons that Mugen train has been as you know resonant as it has is because people can recognize and relate and have responded very positively to that message. It, it has been very cathartic. So I think it's such a wonderfully written piece on how powerful and poignant that theme of the movie and of the series is. So I definitely want you all to give that a read. Now, to describe the popularity of Demon Slayer, why it has become a social phenomenon in Japan, I think a really interesting comic was written by Sugi Yan1192, who is like kind of a webcomic artist, a Japanese webcomic artist. And they talk about like kind of why they think Demon Slayer ended up becoming as popular and resonant as it was. And they really hone in on like an interesting point that like Demon Slayer is kind of a series in which there are a lot of kind of almost parental relationships between characters, like relationships of encouragement and support between characters. And there's like kind of a, not necessarily a hierarchy, but there's like kind of a history of those relationships. Like they're, well, Tanjiro is kind of like a figure of support, a pillar of support for Zenitsu and Inosuke. And then Goku is that pillar for him. And then for Rengoku, it's his mom. I love the visual of him, of where he draws, like, kind of, the characters kind of enveloping each other in terms of, like, the relationship of, like, this person's support influenced this person who then passed that on to another person who then passes that on. I think this is something we talked about in our discussion, but I think that relationship of giving encouragement of what you leave behind in terms of how you inspire what you teach other people is such an important thing of the series. And I think that Sugiyan really hits on a great point here. Like, we kind of live in a time of really, of a lot of social alienation and a lot of, you know, stressed relationships between families. And a lot of people are kind of just yearning kind of that kind of unconditional support. And that's kind of why you have sort of fetishization of this idea of like motherly characters or fatherly characters in a lot of media. Because subconsciously, you know, a lot of people are kind of just wanting that unconditional, like, type of support and encouragement that they get in this, the idealized parent. And I think Demon Slayer has a lot of those kind of relationships between characters that kind of, you know, pass on in terms of, like, creating this network of relationships of support and encouragement 
that just feels very uplifting and cathartic and hopeful. So I thought this was a really great analysis and insight that I, I think is super on the nose and super on the ball in terms of like explaining a lot of that cultural appeal Demon Slayer has and also just in terms of the emotional resonance Demon Slayer has. But I also want to recommend a Tokaiyu lecture or at least uh, Professor Misushima of Tokayu did this lecture on the popularity of Demon Slayer for the Copenhagen Sakura Festival. And it's such an interesting lecture that tries to examine why Demon Slayer became a social phenomenon. And he gives a timeline of like how the media mix of Demon Slayer that definitely fed into its success because there was always like for a period of when the anime came out until recently something new to look forward to and to build hype towards that like got people like in the right moment to like build on each subsequent part of the franchise to let every aspect of the franchise from the mangas through the show through the movie to feed it back into each other into the same ecosystem to uh, kind of propel it to the heights it did but that isn't just it he doesn't just leave it at like oh it's the right place like kind of right time for this media mix to explode like he does describe hey no there's something more in the series of demon slayer itself in terms of, like, how and why it is resonated with Japanese audiences, he describes, like, how... Well, he first he points out the fact that the concept of Oni in the series is so important. And it's so fun. Like, he has a title that's basically... Like, one of his slides is basically titled, Oni is not a demon, which is kind of an interesting call-out to the localization of Oni as demon. Because, yeah, conceptually... Like, Onis aren't really demons, necessarily. Like, they are, like, this distinct cultural concept that has a lot of different explanations and origins that are described. And he highlights that Demon Slayer focuses on, like, two specific ideas that have to do with, like, Oni are warped people. Like, they are people who have kind of been warped because of their own emotions, which is, like, how the series explores it, and it's just very important thematically to the themes that the series explores. Like he outright says at one point that, you know, because of the cultural context man omen, that like demon is maybe not necessarily the best localization of the term. He ties in the fact like yeah, the fact that the demons in the series are like humans who have been kind of warped by like their social alienation in a turning point of history and were kind of outcasts and rejects who were like left behind by a changing society, a society that wasn't necessarily concerned for like their well-being. Like that is a very resonant idea and like in a time of increasing like social alienation and time of like a, a big like turning point in scene that it feels in history. And like the he points out that the Taisho era, it was a very short-lived period in Japanese history, but it does represent kind of like a huge uh, foundational shift in terms of like this idea of feudal Japan and modern Japan. And so Demon Slayer kind of as a setting has this anachronistic tone to it that at once feels very nostalgic, but at the same time is also very modern feeling. And that is a huge part of its appeal too, but also it is a huge part of how that helps it reflect kind of this point in history where it also feels like we're kind of, at the crossroads between two eras, it seems, like in terms of like what the future will bring and what 
the past was, but also uh, in terms of like the social alienation that's come out of that now. And, and of course, in terms of like the impending dread of like, you know, uh, this is something often discussed, like a theme of the series he, he points out is that a lot of the characters are preoccupied with this idea of debt and the idea of life in contrast to that, a lot of the demons are trying to escape and avoid that, particularly Muzan. But a lot of the heroes, they just embrace living their lives for the first without being afraid of that. And that's such a huge thing because there's still always this threat of looming that. And especially like, you know, in the past year of the pandemic that tread has only been more tangibly felt and more on the back of people's minds and the series kind of engages in that like symbolically through this threat of demons like lurking in the shadows and that threat that sense of inevitability of like the demon slayers like inevitably will all fall in battle they all die or they all get disillusioned and that's something the series engages with it's something pretty resonant to again a lot of stuff people have been going through recently and yeah it's just such an interesting psychoanalysis of the series teams and like kind of how it culturally relates to you know kind of the hardships and kind of the struggles a lot of people are going through right now not just in Japanese society but you know, even worldwide. And then specifically why kind of the cultural context that is put in Demon Slayer of its time period of how, of how it uses and depicts Oni, of how it engages in very humanist themes, like why that resonates so much with the Japanese popular consciousness and uh, popular psychology so much and why that resonance like has really allowed it to explode as a social phenomenon in the way it has. Like, I think it's such a super interesting and thoughtful analysis. And I think it is like the best kind of exploration of like why Demon Slayer has kind of exploded in the way it has. Why it is just so profoundly resonant in the way that it has that I've seen yet. Like it's just a very, very interesting lecture essay. So definitely check that out. I think it's super fascinating. And that really does it for my shoutouts this time. Like, not a ton. There's so many great discussions of Demon Slayer out there. But I think, like, in terms of, like, some broad strokes of, like, things to check out, like, these are pieces that really, like, dig into, like, the appeal of Demon Slayer. Like, just from, you know, the casual level of just enjoying the story in Bruce Leslie's videos to focusing on, like, how resonant certain themes are in Kate's podcast and essay to exploring other ideas of, like, how the relationship with characters are so resonant in... Uh, Sugiyan's comic and then the Takai Yu lecture that kind of goes through like this very big cultural analysis of what makes Demon Slayer so resonant. So like definitely I think if you want to kind of enhance the like explore like different areas of like Demon Slayer's appeal and why the story is so resonant like definitely check these out. But that does it for my community shoutouts for this time and yeah, that does it for our Demon Slayer retrospective, which again, long time coming. And I think it's one to be proud of. I think, again, we hit a lot of really great points. And again, there's so much more to say about Demon Slayer. But hey, that's what the Demon Slayer podcast is for. Check those guys out. But yeah, I, I can't believe Demon Slayer like has become what it is. Like I just thinking about when we first covered it and like the third episode of our show 
like so early on in our show and just now here we are like five years later a hundred episodes of our podcast later and we've seen it grow and we've seen what the story now means to so many people and we've seen what a phenomenon is what it represents and so many different things in terms of just the increasing mainstream visibility of anime franchises worldwide in terms of the increasing appreciation for these stories worldwide it's just it's so incredible to see the series kind of the forefront of it all and yeah even though the series is over like in terms of the manga story like i don't i think this franchise will have lingering resonance for many years to come obviously as more anime continues to be produced but also i think this is not a series that is soon going to be forgotten i think we really have lived through like just truly a modern classic that was made and yeah, it's just so profound to think about, like, just how it grew to what it was. And again, for very good reason, as we discussed. Yeah, this series has really come a long way from that from that little jump start that I was just like, it's, it's OK, I guess. I don't I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's really that interesting. Like, and, and now it's just now it's just turned to this just this huge phenomenon that really almost can't be put in the words like it's. It's amazing. I don't I don't know if we'll ever I don't know if we'll ever like have anything like this again as far as like anything we've covered on the show. Yeah, I I really wonder like you know, you never know. Will Chainsaw introduce a Kaizen explode in this way? Like or do you say really like kind of a lightning in a bottle type of series? Like we'll see, we'll see. But I, I do think that Demon Slayer is such a specifically important and resident work now. I think, like, it is definitely, like, a title that will be remembered historically for so many firsts and accomplishments, and I think for very well-deserved good reasons. I would absolutely love it if Chainsaw Man could somehow uh, rise to this meteoric level of, like, profound popularity and social cultural phenomenon that Demon Slayer has. I don't think it will, but I would love it if that did happen. We will see. We will see. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, we, we could we could go on and on and gush about Demon Slayer and like how much it's really resonating with people right now. But I, I think we've mostly said our piece and I think we can go ahead and uh, get ready to wrap up the show. Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at LumRomeyasha on Twitter. It's LumRomeyasha at a variety of places like Animation Revelation and Andy List, wherever there's a LumRomeyasha. That's where you can find me. You can read my reviews on AllArtsCom.com. we got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out. Look forward to more on there. And you can also find on there all the other podcasts I do, including Manga Outside Movies, the show where we mostly talk about anime movies, and... Hashtag Lum Squad, the show where me and my good friend Andrew H.C. Yushimura, we discuss the wonderful wacky world of Rungo Hashi's Yurusei Yatsura. We've been going through the manga, now we're starting to go through the movies because we caught up to the manga just about, so now we're finally going to be attacking the movies since they're on Crunchyroll, finally, like, legally available, and look forward to our discussion of Only You. We'll definitely have a lot of interesting things to say about Only You, this an interesting film with an interesting reduction history. So I'm so excited to get into the movies and talk more about the franchise uh, beyond the manga, too. Like, as much as I love the manga, like, the anime is so interesting in terms of its production history and just in terms of it in general so it's so exciting but yeah look forward to more Lum squad you can follow that on twitter at love underscore squad and on 
pretty much every podcast platform you can think of, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatnot. And of course, it's also in the manga Mavericks feed, and our episodes are up early on the Mongolian's Patreon, which we'll talk about a little bit. But also, if you enjoy the art I make for this show and just in general, animations, illustrations, you can find all of that stuff on my Instagram at SidArtworks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colting. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a few other podcasts on the side besides this one, uh, which you can find links to at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh, it's basically, I have a page dedicated with links to, like I said, whatever I'm producing, editing, hosting, whatever. Uh, you could find links to podcasts such as uh, One Podcast Prevails, a podcast that I host with my good friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Enemy podcast. Uh, about Detective Conan, or Case Closed, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, specifically through the manga, I really enjoy recording that show in particular, so please go listen to that if you're a Detective Conan fan, as well as basically whatever else is on, you know, the uh, SSA network in particular, like, you know, uh, Just a Gintama podcast, or uh, the SSA podcast. Uh, I do a lot of work, again, with my good friend Doctor over at that uh, network in particular, uh, but again, you can find links to all these shows and more at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Um, but I guess as for Manga Mavericks and the podcast, uh, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks over at all-comic.com, where you can find every episode first. Unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where if you sign up for the $2 tier in particular... Uh, you'll get early access to select episodes of the podcast, basically depending on when we have them edited. If we happen to have any podcasts edited early before they're meant to go up on our main feed, we'll post them on our Patreon first. Um, and, you know, not just Manga Mavericks, but you can find early editions of uh, the aforementioned uh, hashtag Lum Squad podcast as well, uh, whenever Lum has those edited early enough to put them on our Patreon. But if you're looking for, you know, for some newer content, some more exclusive content, you could sign up for a $5 tier, where over there, we upload at least one new bonus podcast at the end of every month. Uh, this month in particular, hopefully you listen to our Speed Racer podcast before you listen to this episode. Uh, that came out a little bit ago at uh, at this point. Um, and at the end of this month, you can expect a, a full discussion of the live-action Speed Racer movie from 2008, directed by the Wachowski siblings. Um, spoiler alert, it's a good movie. I really enjoyed talking about it. Uh, along with uh, Joey Weiser and Sam Leach, both contributors to the One Piece podcast, uh, as well as many other things. Um, again, uh, that'll be uploaded at the end of this month. Uh, again, if you have not listened to our Speed Racer discussion, uh, please go listen to that and uh, prime yourselves uh, for this uh, bonus podcast on the Speed Racer live action movie coming up at the end of the month. Uh, and you can find that and so much more on our $5 tier, again, at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. It's really the best way for you to support our show and everything we do. Helps keep the lights on, etc., etc. Uh, and yeah, again, patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, go check us out over there. But as for everything else, you can uh, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks, or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Over there, we post different excerpts of the podcast every once in a while, as well as some exclusive content sometimes too. So uh, again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Go ahead and subscribe there. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Um, do you have any thoughts on Demon Slayer as far as the series goes or just its place in pop culture right now? 
Uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, just manga in general? Uh, what are you reading, you know, right now in particular? Uh, anything that you're reading that you want us to talk about on the show? You know, just email us anything about manga or the podcast or just in general. Just email us. Send us an email. Uh, we'll read it on the show. We love getting emails. Uh, you, again, you can send those over at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on a bunch of different platforms at this point. Um, but especially on Apple Podcasts, uh, you know, if you leave us a rating or a review or both, uh, preferably both, uh, you know, it really helps the visibility of our show. Uh, it really helps us to uh, get to more listeners. And yeah, I mean, in just in general, we enjoy getting uh, feedback from you guys, whether it be uh, positive or negative. Um, you know, we, we really take a lot of that into consideration and take it very seriously as far as like trying to make the show, you know, that much better. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that's going to be about it for this episode of the podcast. This has been episode 160 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. And we will see you guys next time for episode 161. Bye, guys. Sayonara. We recently put out an episode uh, interviewing the letterer for Call of the Night, the new series in English by Koriyama, who you may recognize him as the author of Dagashi Kashi, uh, which got an anime. Uh, we haven't gotten the manga in English yet. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was perfectly timed. Oh my god. Oh god. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just like, I don't know, like, I... My phone is beside me, and I guess I hit something that I shouldn't have. That's okay. <laughs> that was funny. Kind of <laughs> ominous. I, 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 I might keep that in. <laughs> okay, cool. And, um... <laughs>